You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 473. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. Your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 4B at the Hyatt Regency in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Today's show is recorded on the 19th of May, 2021. The FAA looks into the near collision of two flights in San Diego. Research is on to develop a voice-controlled airplane. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, Mutiny. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger. Flight 473 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 10-10 wins in New York City! You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we cover the latest in aviation news and answer your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining me today... From the Valley of the Sun, world traveler, airplane mechanic, Breitling Cognoscenti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain, it's Miami Rick. Hello, everybody. Happy to be back from home for a change. So, uh, looking forward to another great show. It will be, for sure. (laughs) Oh, I'm trying to mute that, or fade it out. Here we go. Okay. And... Also joining us from his studio in... In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. One of those three places. 500. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330-340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airlines. Retard. It's Captain Nick. <laughs> you waited for that, didn't you? You didn't want to speak no. over that. You <laughs> mean Perfectly man. timed. Great to be back on the show. Lovely to see you two guys. Looking forward to, to a good one on the anniversary of the delivery of the 5,000th F4 Phantom II. Isn't that amazing? Ooh, oh, you know, I was celebrating that earlier today. And well, yeah. A, yeah. We'll talk about that later. How about? Oh, yeah. yeah. Right now, let's get on with the news. Stand by for news. All right. Let's start with the first item in our news notebook. It's FAA probes near miss of passenger jets at San Diego Airport. Uh, The incident occurred just after 10.30 p.m. on Thursday of last week and involved an inbound flight and a plane about to take off. And this is from NBC7, San Diego. 
NBC7, San Diego. What is it um, that uh, the Ron anchor Burgundy. man used to say? Huh? Stay, cl- stay classy, San Diego. Stay classy, San Diego. I'm Ron Burgundy. You stay classy, San Diego. <laughs> the Federal Aviation Administration has opened an investigation into an apparent near miss at a San Diego International Airport. No, not at a at the San Diego International Airport. Thursday evening, agency officials confirmed to NBC7. An inbound SkyWest flight from Portland, Oregon, was on final approach, preparing to land a little after 10.30 when the pilot was waved off by air traffic controllers because another aircraft, a Delta flight headed to Detroit, was still on the runway. Air traffic controllers at San Diego International Airport introduced instructed, excuse me, the crew of SkyWest Flight 3446 to discontinue their approach to runway 27 Thursday evening because another aircraft was on the runway preparing for departure. An FAA representative emailed NBC7. The other aircraft, Delta Airlines 2249, departed safely, and the SkyWest aircraft landed later. The FAA is investigating. Flight log data or data, if you prefer. Aircraft tracking website flightaware.com shows the inbound SkyWest jet descended to 200 feet above sea level at the time of its first landing attempt. The plane ended up touching down 12 minutes later. According to Airbus's website, an A330-200 is a little more than 55 feet tall at the tip of its tail. A diagram on the FAA's website shows the eastern edge of the runway at San Diego International Airport's about 17 feet above sea level. So get your calculators out. Um, oh, I thought they were going to do a little bit more math here, but apparently not. Forget that. Um, so like, see, 55 plus 17, take that sum and subtract it from 200. I think that's what they're trying to get at here. It was close, I guess. Um, it's not known how many passengers or crew were on either of the planes involved, but that's okay. Nobody was injured. Nobody was hurt. In fact, probably nobody even knew that it happened. Uh, on board those two airplanes. But uh, let's see. Uh, SkyWest Airlines issued a statement Friday regarding the incident. Alaska Airlines Flight 3446 traveling from Portland to San Diego. Obviously, it was SkyWest operating for Alaska. Uh, Landed without incident at 10.55. Last night, air traffic control issued a go-around to give further separation between aircraft. That's a standard procedure. Our pilots are highly trained and skilled at responding to these type of situations. A Delta spokeswoman declined to comment on the matter because she didn't know what a go-around is. So, um, I don't know. <laughs> no, a wave-off. A wave-off or whatever. <laughs> I don't wave-off. Yeah, she just former, said, former, hey, yeah. former naval aviator, apparently. So, who's yeah. this from? San Diego News 7, NBC 7 in San Diego? I have no comment. Do you? Leave me alone. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, what I'd like to know. I think, uh. Yeah, go yeah. Ahead. I just, I think it's just a slow news day, apparently, huh? I just, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> it does sound like. I mean, why did it? I mean, okay. Um, it sounded to me like the um, the tower instructed the go around. Uh, did the SkyWest flight not know that there was an airplane on still on the end of the runway? I mean, I just, I don't, I'm kind of curious here if these, if this, this. Uh, data is correct. Why did they wait so long to go around? If the airplane so my, my question here is: my question here is: is so that uh, was the go around? Uh, uh, was the SkyWest jet instructed to go around as the Delta jet was on its takeoff run? Um, that's one no. thing. The other thing is, I know it issue. wasn't. No, really, it wasn't. No. Okay. Um, was there low uh, cloud? 
no, 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 no. non non San Diego. Nope. And it's interesting because so um, as as part as as part of the of the uh, before takeoff procedure, uh, and this is this goes for just about every airline out there. You do two very important things. The first one is you turn your TCAS, your Traffic Collision Avoidance System, to T-A-R-A, which stands for Traffic Advisory Resolution Advisory, which is uh, uh, what that's going to do is uh, on your navigation display or EHSI, whatever it is that you have installed on there. So basically, what, where you, where, what you, whatever you use for situational awareness and you know the, the, where, where the airport is and all that, and it shows you where the runway is, the, the, your landing runway, you're going to have a target on there um, telling you that that's an airplane on the runway. The other thing is, uh, whenever you are cleared onto an active runway, uh, you're always going to turn on your your you're going to have your red anti-collision light, but you're also going to as soon as you cross into an active runway, you're going to turn on your white anti-collision light, your strobe light, um, and you don't need to be head on to see that one because usually those are those are at the uh, either the aft portion of the wings or the very uh, back of the uh, APU telecone area, so you're going to see that. And so if um, uh, low ceilings wasn't a an issue, which I don't believe it would be an issue in San Diego because I've, I've flown into San Diego many times and I've never seen it socked in, um, then you would see that airplane on the runway. Uh, what I do personally when that is the case, when I see an airplane, when, when ATC has uh, an airplane on the runway waiting for takeoff clearance as I'm coming in, I'll leave, the, and this is just personal technique, I'll leave the autopilot on until the airplane is cleared off and I'm clear to land so that in case I have to fly a go-around, particularly at night, at the end of a long day, I, I fly the go-around on autopilot because uh, it's a lot easier than having a, you know, just uh, <laughs> having to fly that thing uh, uh, manually. Usually the level off altitude is, is relatively low, two, 3,000 feet, and so uh, to prevent any kind of altitude bust. Uh, but then again, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know, I just, I just, uh, I kind of sounds like a slow news day to me. I don't know. Well, I did. Uh, Liz and I listened to uh, the uh, ATC audio um, yesterday. There was it wasn't Vast mm-hmm. Aviation, but it was another um, video uh, YouTube channel that uh, had the uh, incident audio on their their channel, and it did. It sounded pretty routine. The SkyWest was coming in. They were doing the RNAV. I think they were doing the RNAV. Uh, Zulu to runway 27, and this is uh, that approach here um, that I'm showing on the screen here. Let me uh, zoom into it. Um, so what's minimums there? Okay. I was just going to scroll down and show you that. Uh, 617 if they're doing the RMT. 617. 600 feet above okay. the ground. Um, I don't believe that uh, ceiling and visibility was an issue that night. Mm-hmm. And nope. uh, the... The Delta Jet, uh, the A330, was on the runway, and apparently they had they were having some kind of a mechanical issue going on, and they um, they were cleared on and cleared for takeoff, I believe, but they didn't start their takeoff roll right away as the tower was anticipating, and they finally said after the SkyWest was directed to go around by tower, uh, the uh, Delta Jet said that they were having a mechanical issue and that they needed to you know get off the runway and try to work out the problem. So, uh, yeah, it was there the whole time. It was in position and, uh, the sky West, um, crew, I, I don't know if they didn't see them or what, but you know, anyway, um, 
And here's a question for Nick because I know that I know that Airbuses do this. Uh, I guess um, as part of the, of their takeoff procedure, they have a button under the eCam there, right in the, on the center pedestal. That's uh, takeoff configuration test. I think you press a button there, and uh, there's supposed to be some kind. Of, it, it, the system runs through all the all the the configuration of the airplane. If there's anything uh, that it's not the way it should be, it lets you know. Or that's that correct. Yep. Yep. So I don't know. I wonder if that had anything to do with it. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, I I just yeah. If you've if you've misaligned something or haven't got the flaps where you have told the airplane it should be, uh, then yeah, you'll get a config warning will come up. Uh, I think that's general with quite a lot of airplanes nowadays. Um, I'm going to say uh, yes. The passengers of the um, 330 did hear the Embraer because they came like in go-around power within 128 feet of them. So <laughs> I'm guessing they heard them, but whether they knew what was going on, I don't know. Um, the, the, the wingtip strobes on the Airbus, they can be sort of close to the edges of the runway, so they might have got mist mingled up with the edge lighting. Uh, the aircraft itself, you know, close to the threshold is right in a bright area of uh, landing mm-hmm. lights, barrettes, uh, whatever the approach lighting system is there. Uh, so aircraft lights can get, you know, mixed in with the general mess of lights on the threshold. That, is, I, that is a very good point, yeah. One of the things that we're taught to do is to confirm that the runway area is clear. You've got two sets of eyes looking out to make sure that the runway is clear. So, and uh, I have to say, this is uh, a bit of an old um, complaint of mine. Um, In the States, you get clear to land a long way out. In the UK, you get clear to land when the runway is clear. So there's no way this would have happened in the UK because they would not have given a, run, a clearance to land until that aircraft was off the runway. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but it's just a thing. It's just a thing we all noticed when we first go to the States and right. we go, Christ, there's three airplanes ahead and I'm, you know, there's one guy taken off. I'm yeah. already clear to land. What's going on over here? Yeah, the PRM approaches especially, you know, they – Oh, you know, you're yeah. like number five, and you're clear to land. Um, you know, twenty miles out. Uh, but now, yeah. I, I've heard the justification for it. I've listened to opposing bases, mm-hmm. and they say they'll be on the ball, and if if there is something changes, they will send you around. As happened, I just thought this was a wee bit late. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, again, I just I, just a question. I'm not I'm not casting any judgment on the uh, SkyWest crew um, for. S, uh, SA situational awareness, but it just seems to me maybe they the whole time they could see that the Delta jet was still in position and they were already maybe briefing the fact that they were probably going to have to go around out of this. But still, mm. 200 feet above, yeah, I don't know. I guess, yeah, that yeah, does I mean, seem a bit low to me. You're inside, <laughs> inside of a mile, so it's not like you're right over top of the thing. And yeah, and, and it would be then quite, again, I mean, quite obvious, you know, a big airplane like that, if they're not already brakes released starting their takeoff roll at that point you know that they're going to still be on the runway by the time you touch down. So uh, I don't know. Maybe they just didn't weren't aware that the uh, the airplane was there. I don't know. Just strange to me. Well, just just a question. Yeah. I don't know. You know. Yep. I'm, I'm not not being critical. <laughs> well, maybe I am. No aspersions being aspersions being cast. Thank you, Liz. She is the voice of reason and the voice of my vocabulary, and. 
it, you know, I, just an aside, uh, I've done a couple of um, uh, interviews for other podcasts uh, in recent weeks, and uh, I should have had Liz all set up uh, and on the uh, interviews with me so that she could like start telling me things in the ear that I'm supposed to say. Because when, when I was at a loss for words on some of these interviews, I had nobody to tell me what to say, and I just sounded like a blab- blabbering, blubbering idiot. We, we all know Liz doesn't really exist. She's just a voice in your head. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a voice in my head. That if she's real or not, it doesn't matter. What was the name of that movie? That uh, the Harvey. 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 Uh, Harvey. No, no, I'm not thinking. It was a more uh, modern movie. Harvey was the Invisible a, Rabbit. No, no, I'm talking a about Beautiful the Mind. One. Yeah, I think is that a it? Beautiful Mind with uh, with uh, Russell Crowe. He kind of oh, fell yeah. in love with the, uh, the the vo- computer voice. Right? No, 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 no. I'm That's a different that movie then. No, it's I'm, another movie yeah. I'm thinking of, yeah. and I can't think of what it is. Help me, people in the chat room. That's why you're there to to kind of give me the answers that I'm looking for. Hey, Ant Pruitt, he is a uh, twit uh, TV network. He's twit, a twit. Uh, <laughs> and, and no, he's not a twit. Well, he is actually. <laughs> Jeff, he is. The movie is. The movie is her. Yeah, her. That's what I'm going to call him for now. And the, mov- the twit. The mer- the movie is her. Thank you, Liz. Um, that I was thinking of, you know, there's, he has a thing in his ear and it's like a constant, um, digital companion and he's talking and he actually falls in love with this digital, compa- digital companion. Um, anyway, wow. Talking about a rabbit hole. Sorry. Sounds weird. <laughs> it's an interesting movie. That's it's really the, pretty that's good. That's the rabbit hole that Harvey lives in. Obviously. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so where were we? What were we, what were we talking it's going about? to be. Okay. I think uh, that's what Liz is telling me as well. And not so many nice words. Uh, let's move on with uh, item B uh, report Vulcan, I guess that's the way they pronounce it. Vulcan uh, AN 26 Antonov 26 at Birmingham, not Birmingham, but Birmingham, England on the 16th of July, 2020 crew possibly followed non-existent glide slope indication twice, not once twice. What? Yeah. Uh-oh. Uh, registration, AN26 registration, URCQD performing flight, uh, 161 from Ostrava, Czech Republic to Birmingham, uh, with three passengers and six crew, not a lot of passengers, <laughs> three passengers and six crew. Okay. Weird. Was on a localizer DME approach to Birmingham's runway 33 when the aircraft did not descend according to the approach profile, but remained at the initial altitude. When the aircraft was about 600 feet above the profile, tower instructed a go-around in line with the missed approach procedure. The aircraft positioned for another localizer DME approach to runway 33 and descended. However, uh, they descended about 600 feet below the profile this time. (laughs) (laughs) Average it out. I shouldn't (laughs) have. Call it 300. (laughs) Tower issued a terrain alert and again instructed a go-around. The aircraft subsequently positioned for an ILS approach approach (laughs) to runway 15 and landed safely. This guy needs a glide path. Details, details, huh? So, uh, interestingly, the uh, the captain here, uh, 44 years old, has an ATPL, 2,512 hours total, uh, 624 hours on type, was undergoing a line check by a senior manager within the company at the time of this flight. Oh, I wonder if he passed. <laughs> I'm not thinking I he wonder, did. I wonder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just surprised that Ouch. the line check airman let him proceed as far as he did. Maybe this guy didn't know what was going on either. I don't know. Yeah. Well, if he's going to learn, he's going to learn the hard way. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> it's only three passengers. So, you know, you take your chances <laughs> exactly. when you fly with this company. Um, let's see. Uh, A2C provided further radar vectors to establish the aircraft on the localizer the second time around. And they reminded the pilots that there was no glide slope available. So that was between the first and second attempt at runway 33 yeah. before they finally went around to... One five. It's like they could tell that maybe they didn't understand the fact that there is no glide soap or you're not supposed to use a glide soap if you see one there. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, let's see what else here. Um, yeah, that's about it. Uh, they, uh, apparently this guy didn't do well on this check ride. I'm <laughs> thinking. So uh, I wonder if everyone understands what a localizer DME approach is. Probably not, but maybe you could tell them, Nick. Oh, well, okay, so the localizer <laughs> part of it is the same as an ILS, and that will give you an indication whether you're left or right of the ideal approach path. So basically you're on the center line of the runway. Um, and because you don't have a glide path, you are now using the distance measuring equipment. So you get a readout of miles from the uh, ILS aerials. Um, and um, you're going to get that on your screen. And you look at a chart with your approach plate on, and it will tell you what height you need to be at what distance from the airfield. So there'll be a start point for your descent, and you usually start going down just a little bit before it. So the inertia of the airplane takes you beautifully onto the uh, descent path and you set up what you think will be the ideal um, descent rate. Or if you're in an Airbus, you just select three degrees nose down on the, um, on the flight path yeah, we, angle. We, we have that in Boeing's too. I used oh, to be on the 777 all the time. You've Airbus now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so... <laughs> Joking, I knew that. Um, and uh, so ideally every mile uh, the other pilot will tell you what height you're supposed to be and whether you're above and below the ideal glide path. And you just make corrections to ensure that you hit the next height at the right height. Uh, and just, uh, you know, measure your progress on the way down. So there's no needle to follow. You're just doing uh, a sort of a manual comparing your height with your range from the ILS and judging your descent path from that. Yeah, it's a, it's really interesting because newer airplanes actually, well, probably not the Antonov 26, but I'm talking on uh, newer type airplanes that are equipped with uh, flight management systems. They will have the glide path coded into the procedure itself, and it'll tell you the point at which you're supposed to capture that um, that uh, that glide path that is in the in the flight management system, and it'll tell you what how many degrees that glide path is, and you know nine times out of ten is three degrees, which is usually what a normal glide slope is, and you will you will basically fly your um, your published altitude until that very point, and then as long as you have the aircraft in vertical path mode. It'll capture that path and bring you down that uh, computer-generated uh, path down to minimums, which are um, a little bit higher than your published ILS minimums. Category 1 ILS minimums are usually about 200 feet. Um, when you have uh, a, uh, a computer-generated glide path, like like a procedure, like Nick just mentioned, a localizer DME procedure only, where you're only using localizer uh, the only ground-based navid you're using for 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 uh, for, nav- for navigation is the localizer. Um, you need to have uh, you need to be able to see the runway a little earlier uh, and establish 
had visual contact with your landing environment uh, prior to landing. Um, another interesting thing about the uh, the the glide the, the glide slope here is, um, uh, and the reason why and I, an accident came to mind here. Remember that uh, seven four that went down in um, uh, what was it? Uh, one of the one uh, one of the stands. Uh, it was a four hundred. It happened not too long ago, actually, oh. uh, maybe, maybe about a year or two ago. Um, and it captured oh, yeah. a false yeah. glide slope. Yep. Yeah. And it's 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 important that whenever you're flying an instrument landing system procedure in ILS, you fly the um, the published altitude prior to intercepting that glide slope because the glide slope uh, signal itself is a very funny thing. So you have your actual glide slope of three degrees, and you have false glide slopes. You have a uh, and the way the glide slope works is basically you have an antenna that emits two signals, one at ninety hertz, one at one at one hundred and fifty hertz, and where those two lobes intersect, that's called a, a, a null zone, right? So basically, the the what the instrument on the aircraft is looking for is that null zone where where the ninety hertz and one hundred and fifty hertz signal kind of nullify each other. It's called a null zone, right? And so that the the aircraft going to intercept is going to interpret that as being a three degree glide, but there are null zones. At nine degrees, <laughs> and at fifteen degrees, and so if you fly, if you if you remain high on the on 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 the uh, on the uh, on your intercept altitude and intercept a null zone at nine degrees or fifteen degrees, yeah, the aircraft uh, the, the the your instrument is going to show you on glide slope, but your rate of descent is going to be considerably higher than. It otherwise would be had uh, where you fly in a three degree glide, and the way you can kind of make sure that you're on the correct glide is you take your ground speed and multiply it times five, and that should give you about what a three degree glide sync rate should be. So if you're flying, you know, at a hundred knots, you know, to intercept a three degree glide should give you about a five hundred foot a minute descent based on that based on that ground speed. But you know the the moral of the story here is always intercept the glide slope at the published altitude to uh, uh, prevent intercepting um, false glide slopes. And that's what I'm getting at here. Awesome. Hey, so while um, you and uh, Nick were uh, so eloquently explaining uh, localizer DME procedures and such, I looked up the actual approach that uh, they were flying in uh, Birmingham, and here it is. It's the uh, ILS DME or localizer DME runway three uh, three, and well, there, I can just about make out the height for ranges there in that bar in the middle, in that series of boxes. Yep, there it is. There yep. you go. Right there. Yeah, five miles nineteen seventy feet, four miles sixteen sixty feet. Yeah, and that's the height you're comparing on the way down. And yep, and it is a three degree lower. Yeah. Yep, it's a three degree glide. Yep, and the break off for a localizer approach is in the box uh, to the rightish. Yep, localizer glide slope about seven forty feet. Seven hundred forty feet. That's yep. correct. Yeah, so, so it gives you plenty of time to uh, set up a visual approach once you're out of uh, the cloud. Yep. Yeah. Over uh, that over, is only four hundred and twelve feet above the runway. Yes. But I mean, yeah, but but you're still over, you know, you're a little outside a mile, which is plenty of time to adjust. And uh, yep. mm -hmm. and ideally, ideally, and this is I'm, I'm, I'm saying usually the way this works is your your uh, whatever visual glide path indicator system is usually it um, it should coincide with the electronic glide path or your or your or you breaking out at minimums 
to see the runway environment. And I'm saying usually because I've flown many times in airports where it says glide path does not coincide with either the precision, uh, precision approach path indicator or the visual approach slope indicator. And um, it'll show you either being high or low, even though you are on the electronic glide path. And so that takes a little bit of, you have to be prepared for that. Um, but they usually coincide. Even if they don't, they tell you on the, on the chart. Sweet. So I see the uh, AAIB rated it a serious occurrence, serious incident. They do. So they are very worried about this bloke. They are. They, um, do. they don't do that lightly. Nope. Mm. So that. he puts it down to uh, not flying them very often, and they'd change the instrumentation on his airplane. Mm. So, okay. Okay. Sure. Mm. <laughs> Sounds like a good yeah. excuse for me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm looking at the weather. I highlighted it. You know, they, the 4,000 foot ceiling, um, 2,600 foot ceiling with uh, cumulonimbus, um, temporary thunder, uh, rain, uh, thunder showers. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't ideal weather, but it wasn't by far, it wasn't anything super low visibility or low ceiling kind of an approach. And obviously it couldn't have been because it was a localizer only. Mm. I guess, you know, this is possible for you to fly kind of skosh weather approaches using a non-precision like the localizer DMA, oh, yeah. but uh, not uh, not very common. Well, we've been mm. doing it for decades. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> and you should know how to do it regardless of where uh, they put the instrumentation on your airplane, right? You should, uh, he's yeah. the commander. He's supposed to know what's going on. So uh, <laughs> kind of a thumbs down from all of us here uh, on that, yeah, uh, those so. two approaches. All right, continuing on, let's talk about this one here, um, Moldova, Moldova, an A321 at Moscow's Domodedovo, 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 with eight crew. And hang on a second, I have the actual Russian person who is a listener to our show, Controller Vlad. Uh, recorded this for us. So this is like from, oh, wait, do I not have that one? Uh, crap. <laughs> uh, yeah, it'll be, uh, right now you're listening to it. Domodedovo. When, see, wasn't that nice? Thank you, uh, controller Vlad. Uh, I have this one. Novosibirsk. Oh, that's not him. Vnukovo. That's him. Shremetyvo. Yeah, but none, neither of those airports. It was the other one. <laughs> what was it again, Rick? Domedievo. Domedievo. Sure. Uh, with eight crew and no passengers, uh, was on a final approach to that airport's runway 14 right uh, when the crew initiated a go around from low height, below 300 feet AGL. The aircraft positioned for another approach to runway 14 right and landed about 20 minutes later. Post flight inspection revealed damage to the tail of the aircraft, which was unable to depart for the return flight. The occurrence aircraft is still on the ground about 44 hours after landing. Of course, this was uh, a few days back. This was out on, what, the 18th of May. So I don't know if they've gotten the thing fixed or not. Uh, airport sources report the aircraft was not able to land on the first approach due to strong winds. They performed another approach, touched down hard, and struck its tail Ooh. onto the runway surface. Rosa Viazia reported here. Let me try this one. Rosa Viazia. 
Thank you. Reported the tail of the aircraft contacted uh, the runway threshold, a runway threshold lamp of runway 14 right on the second approach at 1240 Zulu time. A subsequent inspection revealed damage to the tail section of the aircraft in the form of a dent, scoring, and abrasions. Uh, as uh, one of the uh, readers, followers of this website, this is, by the way, from the Aviation Herald, uh, pointed out the aircraft, uh, then tail number Golf Juliet Sierra Juliet X-Ray, was flying for My Travel Airways, had suffered yet another tail strike at East Midlands on the 2nd of March in 2002. Not sure why that's, you know, something that is important, but uh, they... But that plane spotters like that well, stuff. They keep yeah. doing it. Eventually, the tail falls off. We'll fall so off completely. Yeah, you're has, right. It has some bearing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. So yeah, if you're if you happen to be with the airline that's flying it now, you might want to like maybe get another airplane because uh, there's a chance that yeah. The, you know, and and like all joking aside, that is that is a a very serious serious. Um, um, uh, the, the, one of the worst places you can you can have a, a, a grand contact with is the tail because it's structurally the tail um, right inside of that you have the aft pressure uh, bulkhead and uh, there's been many many accidents where um, aircraft have had uh, tail strikes and the bulkhead is blown out and one of them uh, one that comes to mind here is uh, Japan Airlines one twenty three oh yeah um, oh, and that was uh, a nasty. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 so um, whenever uh, you even suspect that you had a tail strike uh, uh, on takeoff, you, you never make it past 10,000 feet. You know, pressurize the airplane, come right back because you don't know what the, uh, how the uh, bulkhead is holding up structurally and uh, whether it'll be able to take the, uh, the pressurization, um, you know, 8.6 pounds per square, per, per square inch is a lot of pressure um, to, uh, to yeah. keep uh, in there. If, and if that's not structurally sound, then uh, yeah, you could be in for a very, very rough, uh, rough, rough ride. So the AAIB had uh, issued a final report on this, and I don't, I don't really um, – I'm going to read it, and maybe one of you or both of you can explain, help me understand this. I don't really get what they're trying to tell me here. The root cause of the accident was the co-pilot's desire and perhaps need to practice an instrument approach technique shortly before his ability to perform it satisfactorily was assessed in the simulator. That so how's he a, checked out going on the line? I don't know. Uh, he had oh. not intended to fly the I would the guess he, he just knew he had to do had a simulator coming up, and he was trying to practice some approaches. Uh, okay. Yeah. You know. I, all right. He had not intended to fly the ILS approach without the benefit of the flight director, but once he had allowed the aircraft to fly through the glide, glide path at relatively close range to touchdown, about five nautical miles, if he wished to retain the use of the flight director, he had little choice other than to discard the uh, that approach and attempt another. Thus, what? the earlier oversight of admitting He's... to arm the approach mode of the flight director subsequently robbed him of its value in reducing workload, and he never succeeded in regaining a properly stabilized approach. The direct cause of the accident was the decision to continue the approach when it was not properly stabilized. The co-pilot's call regarding low airspeed at 70 feet AGL was the flight crew's final chance to extricate themselves from the deteriorating situation by performing a go-around. Now, I don't know about you, but this does not sound like the air accidents investigation branch of um of england or the united kingdom no i don't don't think it is (laughs) because it it wouldn't be the english is terrible i don't understand what they're trying to tell me here what no i i 
I don't think it is uh, the British AI. But why would they be out there anyway? It's uh, yeah. it's not a British aircraft. It's uh, it's ha- happened in Russia. Yeah, don't don't understand. Um, I don't also don't understand. Now I, I'm not an A321 operator. Wasn't an A321 operator, but um, the selection of for the flight director is one button. Boom, boom. Turn it on. Turn it off. Turn it on. Turn it off. You can do it all day. It doesn't stop you doing an approach. Um, it, and and in the aircraft I flew, it didn't disarm the approach either. So I don't understand why he couldn't just select the flight director or why he wasn't capable of flying a raw data um, right. approach without the flight director. You know, pilots have been doing that for ever since. You know, I, I remember though, will, but didn't. <laughs> yeah, I remember that when I was uh, when I would uh, jump seat on 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 three twenties and three nineteens and eighteens uh, between um, uh, when I uh, flew in South America between uh, the city down on the coast and up to Quito. Um, the pilots would fly the you know the ILS glide slope localizer down a certain altitude, and then once they had everything in sight and everything was fine, they would switch modes from that to track flight path angle. And um, and just continue continue going down, and, and, and usually deselect the flight directors at that point because the flight director for the flight path angle, which we nicknamed the bird, is <laughs> yeah, hard the bird, to fly. Yeah. It, it's it's laggy and it's it's not a simple thing to fly, and it's nice just to get it out of the way. And the only reason uh, we would select the flight path angle on a visual approach is because it gives you a lot more information. Um, for visually flying the aircraft. It gives you your true angle of descent uh, mm-hmm. and uh, it gives you a drift as well. So it gives you more information. And so it was a generally accepted technique if you're when you're visual to select flight path angle. You've also got all the other attitude and information you'd normally have, but it's still there. It's just kind of behind the bird. You yeah. can still refer to either. So. And my other question here is, how is it that uh, you get you let your airspeed get low uh, if you have ground speed mini going for you? Unless he wasn't flying with uh, with the with the auto thrust uh, engaged, um, he might not have been. But ground speed mini works whether the auto thrust is engaged or not. It, exactly. it, yeah. It's still the it's a magenta triangle, a little mm-hmm. speed bug. And you just maintain that speed bug. You you've got to use manual throttles to maintain it, but ground steep mini is still fed into the system. So uh, yeah, so, so just, no, just slow slow scan perhaps. Yeah, yeah, it's very easy to. I think sometimes when you're flying an airliner and you're concentrating on that landing point to let your speed fall out of your scan a bit, particularly if you're used to using auto throttle a lot, auto thrust a lot. Uh, and it's just one of those techniques you have to remind yourself to do to scan the speed regularly because uh, it's just you know a little harder. It's not there on a head-up display, sadly. Exactly. And the interesting thing here is that you know the very the very late stages of the of the of the final approach. Uh, you, I mean, you really are uh, controlling your speed with your pitch and your and your synchrotic with your with your power. Um, it's just kind of you, you get at least that's that's my my my. Uh, the way I kind of feel, you know, when you're when you're inside of maybe you know 300 feet, perhaps, and I, I'm I'm saying this because going into Maui the other day, uh, uh, and 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 flying into the um, hit a little bit of turbulence coming down, and then uh, we hit a little bit of a wake from the from the jet that took off before us it was a triple you know, seven. Um, 
you really have no time to, you know, go down and scan your instruments when you're inside of 300 feet, I think, especially when the wind's blowing the way it was blowing. And uh, all, all you really can do is try to hold your your, your, your attitude as best you can and, and you kind of feel what the airplane's doing sync-wise and kind of, you know, and, and, and correct that way. Um, because oh, absolutely, said, yeah, I agree. Uh, there is a line in there, Jeff, which I'm worried worried about. He never succeeded in regaining a properly stabilized approach. Mm. If he didn't have a stabilized approach, what was he doing continuing with the attempt to land? Precisely. Why wasn't he going Just around? hoping for the best, that's all. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It's a yeah. technique. It's not a good one, but yeah. <laughs> no, Check out that wind, well, though, 250 at three meters per second. Hmm. Yeah, lots of wind, huh? Well, it's six it's knots. Windy. Six knots, yeah. Yes. Six knots for runway one <laughs> yes. four. So, uh, yeah. Yes, a real tough day. So I, I wonder how he got on in his simulator. Hmm. Oh. I'm thinking probably like uh, the uh, other fellow uh, that had the check ride. <laughs> they're probably training program. together at this point. Now, <laughs> yes, so, yeah. probably. Are. Yes, they're now a constituted crew. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, hey, that's no problem uh, for the in the future because um, item D, um, aircraft have become voice controlled in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, Excellent. Honeywell oh, Aerospace sh- engineers and scientists are developing revolutionary cockpit technologies that will enable pilots to fly their planes using voice commands. It's the most recent yeah, attempt to no. eliminate pilot <laughs> workload, eliminate pilots actually, <laughs> by rising cockpit automation. The theory is that pilots can waste less time on repetitive and time-consuming activities like weather analysis by giving basic commands like tuning to a radio frequency or changing to a heading. Here's a, a little uh, example here. Um, quote, tell me the weather in Charlotte and tell me the critical weather en route is one command that could be given to ease a pilot's workload, according to Vipal Gupta, Vice President and General Manager of Honeywell Aerospace Avionics. And, and the kit will come back and say, the weather in Chattanooga <laughs> is... Exactly. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I, I don't have anything for that. Perhaps you'd I like... I recognize that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I would take an umbrella today <laughs> in <umbrella>. Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's like calling Charlotte. Car- yes, to get a hold Car- of Charlotte. <laughs> no, don't call Charlotte. Excellent. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> this is a bad idea. It, me just let weather. me tell you, this is not. This is not a good sure. idea. Sure. Uh, Seriously, people, keep it simple. Not. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Please don't. Yeah, we're, we're button pushers, and when you push a button and see a number coming up on a dial or a screen, you know exactly what you're going to get. So please don't do this, because you know there, there are people talking, girls coming in, uh, giving you coffee, etc. Uh, you know, it's just too easily confused. Yes. It is. Yeah, I agree with you. The eventual goal is to bring in that natural language processing context understanding. Wow and then process it, and then provide the value to the cockpit. However, unlike Siri or Alexa, the aircraft's response must be immediate. When traveling in difficult environments, pilots can't afford to wait minutes for the machine to learn, comprehend, and conduct the order. Yeah, duh. Yeah, I don't know. I think this is a pipe dream, and uh, I don't think that's ever... I don't see how it saves time. I I really don't. Because if you're adept at 
typing out the weather. For a problem. You can yeah. probably do it as quick as you can say. And you know what, Nick? Not only that, and a lot of these airports that have digital aids, there is a there is a a a, a mode in your ACARS where you can have it send you a new ADIS every time a, a report comes out. It's called auto uh-huh. update. It'll absolutely it'll just, yeah. it'll just tell you hey, why new ADIS here that? it is. <laughs> yeah. Instead of having to call Charlotte for it, so uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm saying thumbs down Not on this one. Yeah, All right. Another thumbs, down. another thumbs down. It's a thumbs down show uh, right there. Uh, um, all right. Uh, let's move on with this one then. Uh, this is from Cranky Flyer. Uh, United tries to end the blame game by retiring delay codes. Uh, let's see. Uh, United is working towards something will be um, unimaginable to unimaginable i did say that right to just about every frontline airline employee it is planning on eliminating internal delay codes those obnoxious things that help the airline decide whose fault it is that a flight's delayed i know this sounds very inside baseball sorry to even bring up the baseball word dodger fans since your team has forgotten to play oh that's inside that's some inside baseball right there um, so go. forget that. Uh, I'm going to move down to this. Uh, there are really two kinds of delay codes in airline land. The first is the external code, which the Department of Transportation reports out in its monthly consumer report. It looks something like, well, anyway, like the, the typical uh, information on airline flight delays that uh, we are all uh, privy to uh, that kind of rank the airlines for various months and, you know, who's on top for the best on time uh, rating. And if your flight's delayed or canceled, then there are certain codes that, um, you know, uh, try to keep everybody on the same piece of paper kind of thing, same page. Uh, But a lot of airlines, including Acme, have internal delay codes. And as they say uh, at the beginning of this, that uh, airlines, I guess... The whole point of that is to kind of get a better, so get good data or data on what is happening with the airline. Why is this flight always, you know, like, or at least 60% of the time delayed uh, for 15 or 20 minutes? And let's see why, you know, is it, is it, uh, um, loading baggage? Is it connecting passengers? Is it uh, the pilots just uh, you know too lazy to show up on time? What is it? So <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, one. That's probably the uh, one. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so they 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 use these metrics to kind of help um, you know fine tune things. But the problem is <laughs> that if especially at an airline that is highly unionized, so every employee group has union representation, and of course they don't want to be blamed for this stuff. Um, they're constantly battling each other instead of, instead of working together as a team to try to, who, it doesn't matter whose fault it is. Let's just get this thing going. Let's fix whatever it is that we need to fix and get this thing going. So they're trying, they're experimenting now at United with trying or removing these delay codes, internal delay codes to see if maybe people can play better together. Uh, I don't think, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of skeptical that this is going to help at all, but, um, Yeah. So that's what's going on here. What do you think of this? Do you have those internal delay codes at uh, Acme uh, Cargo? Acme, what do uh, we call we you? We do. We do. Okay. Um, but um, uh, yeah, because I mean, at the end of the day, it's um, I mean, you are you are um, responsible for a timely operation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, every department is, and uh, and, you, and at the end of the day, you have to answer to the whoever the uh, customer is. 
and um, there's really no way of um, curving you know, the line either one way or the other if you don't know where the problem is. And so I believe that these delay codes are are are, are necessary. Really, you, know, you need to know where to trim the fat. Um, just at least from in, in my experience. Um, for you to really be late, uh, you have to be really, really late because there's a lot of padding that goes into these, uh, into um, um, uh, scheduled uh, departure and scheduled arrival times. And even the flight time itself, there's a lot of padding in there as well. So as to not bring the, um, you know, the timeliness of the aircraft statistically um, uh, way, way down. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you on this one, Jeff. I don't see how deleting this would, uh, or getting rid of these uh, would, uh, you know, have any positive uh, impact on the operation at all. I mean, if it, if if it'd be detrimental, if anything. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You've got to, you've got to know where the bottlenecks are. Exactly. Otherwise, you can't fix them. And the only yep. way to find out is to see uh, what regularly causes delays. And if it's the same thing all the time, then you've got to allocate manpower. You've got to streamline the system. And if you don't know where the system's breaking down, how are you going to do that? Right. I agree. All right. Thumbs up then. On us and thumbs yes. down on. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. No, I, I guess it's kind of a thumbs down again, right? On the uh, yeah, on yeah. the getting to rid of delay codes. Okay, ah, it's kind of a thumbs down day, I guess. Uh, well, let's try to get it uh, back to a thumbs up operation, and uh, let's do this. It's time to get to know us that segment of the show where we talk about what's been happening with all of us in between shows. And, you know, it hasn't been a lot of time, Rick. <laughs> you and I. No. It was just a couple of days ago when we were recording part two of episode 472. And um, anyway, regardless, what uh, has been happening with you since that well, recording. after we uh, f after we finished uh, that recording, I uh, went downstairs, got uh, went to the gym for a little bit, and then went out and uh, got some sushi. And then I had to go to bed uh, relatively uh, early, or tried to at least, uh, because I had to I had to fly that uh, that evening. I uh, departed back for the mainland at uh, midnight local Ooh. time um, in uh, Hawaii, which is at uh, three a.m. Uh, I guess Pacific time, six a.m. Mm -hmm. Yeah, east uh, east coast for a um, it was about a five hour flight, which it was it was good though because it was it was a nice you know stiff um, eighty knots uh, eighty knot tailwind across, which was which was nice. Um, so uh, you know, point eight one Mach and uh, eighty knot tailwind, uh, just under five hours, which is great. Got to uh, Riverside, which is uh, it's as, as as we said as we were talking about last time, it's. Uh, a combined um, Air Force base, and they have a civilian ramp there, and then uh, took the uh, the transfer van from there to Ontario to the airport for my flight back uh, here to Phoenix. And I uh, got home and uh, just been kind of, oh, man, taking care of uh, stuff here around the house. Because it's funny because I, I joke around saying that I, my, my, my days off really are when I go to work, and <laughs> when I come home, it's really when I go to work mm -hmm. here because it's, uh, it's a lot of stuff that happens uh, when I'm not, not here that I need to take care of. So um, right. here I am. Excellent. Yeah. Welcome home. 
and get to work. Yes, what are you doing and sitting know, in front really. of that stupid microphone? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I know. Oh, do you have a hidden microphone somewhere? Have you been hearing our conversations? <laughs> yeah, no. I'm just guessing. Um, yeah, well, you're guessing right. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll try to keep this thing rolling so uh, you can get back to work. Um, Nick, how about yourself? What have you been up to, sir? Well, I've been trying to clear the decks. Um, I completed a photo shoot, managed to get all the, the uh, pictures published in a couple of days. Um, got rid of all my current bowls matches, managing to stay in everything I'm playing at the moment. Um, and all this really is aimed around uh, having a nice week off uh, next week. So Friday, heading off down to the southwest to Cornwall, uh, to a little cottage we uh, have rented down there, and we're going to spend a lovely, quiet week um, by the seaside with the dogs, and uh, you know, eat Cornish pasties and drink uh, Cornish beer, and um, just wind down a little bit. So that's what this week has really been aimed at. Corn and beer is that? Uh, is that beer made out of corn? Is that? Uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, that's Budweiser, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, God. Uh, no, I'll be drinking proper job or tribute or something like that. So, Ooh, so, I wouldn't mind yeah. a proper job. Yes, I bet you would. That's <laughs> very nice. Um, Happy ending. So, uh, old. <laughs> <laughs> doing well there. Uh, uh -huh. I obviously won't be on next week's show. I, not just because there's, I'm unlikely to have decent internet down there, but uh, Jilly has decreed that uh, we have a, a, a week away. I mean, we stop doing what we normally do and enjoy ourselves and relax. So you won't see me. Excellent. Our uh, plain tale next week uh, is a, a rerun of one that I've tied it up a bit, and it is actually one of my very favorites. Plain Tales. You haven't heard it for quite a while now, but uh, look forward to that. Um, and um, that's really it. Um, take my camera down there, of course, because we often meet up with uh, a lot of... Uh, that's what the breeder of one of our dogs lives, so we often meet up with a whole bunch of uh, their friends and their Vieslers and go for a big mass walk on a beach somewhere. And uh, it's always fun to take pictures. That's uh, always good for a laugh. So that'll be nice. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Well, I can't wait to hear how that all goes. Oh, I won't, I won't tell you. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> well, then I guess I'll have to talk to Julie then find out. <laughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> let's see. My turn. Um, I had a meetup. Uh, with uh, Stephen hey. Ivy, I kind of mentioned that on the last episode that I was going to meet with Mr. Ivy, and uh, we did that, and we uh, had some um, audio, and I haven't actually listened to the whole thing. I just like literally minutes before we started today's show, was able to put it in the sound playing app that I use. Uh -oh, uh, and audio. yeah, so <laughs> it's uncensored. Hopefully I didn't say anything bad. So here, let's, uh, let's find out together, uh, how this meetup went with Stephen Ivy. Sing it, Stephen. Yeah. Stephen Ivy's here with me and you can hear him singing in the background. Wait, listen, let's listen. Yeah, you know, his voice is quite a bit higher than I, I thought it would be. But uh, anyway, so Stephen Ivey, you've heard his name many times. You'll remember that Stephen and I 
took that great adventure last summer. Was it last summer? Yeah, last June, uh, June of last year, July. July? Okay, July of last year. So not quite a year ago. I had a blast. Got to see a bunch of amazing national parks and um, and a train in Durango, Colorado. That was a lot of fun. Uh, anyway, I'm sure you can find. Maybe I'll try to put a link. Don't don't plan on it. Don't count on it. But I'll try to remember to put a link in the show notes of uh, some of these. Uh, our great adventure, uh, what, what do we call it? We like, would never give up a name, but we gave up. Uh, yeah, anyway, we had fun. So, um, Stephen, how you doing, man? I've been doing good, Jeff. I've been busy. I, uh, I moved back from um, California back in March. Uh, my job at uh, Acme Defense was fully remote, so I was able to come back home. Um, and then I've been busy uh, redoing a house, um, been taking some time off from flying, and then I've also somehow managed to um, find myself getting married at the end of this year. What? Yeah, yeah, that wasn't planned. Um, wasn't planned at all. And there's actually a lot more planning that goes into a wedding than what I've thought. So I've been really no kidding. Yeah, it's like it's just some great event or something. Like you got to get people food, alcohol, and everything. It's <laughs> it's a lot. But yeah, that's what I've been up to. Um, but yeah, looking to start flying again next month. And I'm based in Houston now, so yeah. So what I got from that is he's not doing anything. Just sitting around watching Netflix or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, so that's that's great, amazing news that uh, you're going to tie the the proverbial knot in uh, December. December. Yeah. Oh man, can't wait. That's that's cool. Yeah, it, it should be great if everything goes according to plan. Um, hopefully. Oh, and it will. Everything always goes according to plan. Is, is there like a QRH procedure for things that happen at weddings? Because I, I might need that list. But yeah, yeah. Well, no, you'll, everything will go well. It'll be perfect, and uh, you're going to have a great time. So that's exciting. And uh, this uh, meal we're having here is at the. Uh, we're not. Did we ever figure out exactly how to pronounce yeah, this? Is it Superica or su- yeah. Superica? It's su- like yeah. like America, like Super America. Yeah, I don't know. Is that what it means? Yeah. Superica, Superica. We're not sure. But anyway, it's a, it's a Tex-Mex place here, and uh, they have several locations. We're at the location at the Braves uh, Ballpark, uh, Truist Field in uh, Cobb County, and they call this area the Battery. Not sure why, but it's the Battery, and uh, it's got all kinds of, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, look, it's crowded. We had to be on a wait list, and... Uh, looks like everything is back to normal. The pandemic is not here right now. And it's an open container policy. You can walk around with alcohol outside here. What? Oh, that's great. All right. Picked a bad day to give up alcohol, <laughs> didn't I? Okay. Well, anyway, uh, we just wanted to say hi and uh, kind of fill you in on Stephen's great news. And that's it from us. We're signing out. Back to you in the studio, crew. I remember now. I had a meetup with Stephen right, Ivey so in a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> it was really good food, really good food. Uh, as you Steve can see, Steve has a fantastic voice, by the way. It, uh, he does. Great singing voice. Yeah, uh, great, uh, yeah. great pipes. Oh, oh, you mean the? Oh, yeah, the singing at the beginning. Yeah, really, yeah, yeah, much yeah. higher than you'd you'd think it would be. Uh, very. <laughs> yeah. And you can see that the uh, chips and salsa there um, in the in the photo that I had on there. Let's see. I'll go back to that again. Uh, there we go in the in the restaurant. There looks like somebody kind of overshot the parking place uh, behind us. There it was a close call, but uh, the vehicle kind of crashed through the, uh, through the wall right Very there. Good. Yeah, 
Uh, anyway, um, so uh, great to see you, Stephen, and uh, we'll be hearing a lot more from him, I'm sure, in the uh, upcoming months as they get closer and closer to that uh, magic day of their nuptials. So that was a lot of fun meeting up with Stephen. And let's see, what else was I going to talk about? It was going to be this. Uh, this was sent in by Robert uh, Thompson. A friend up uh, just lives south of the Big Chicken up there, Mayretta. Aviation history will blast out of the museum and into the skies as Texas Raiders, a fully restored B-17 flying fortress, thunders into Cobb County International Airport May 24th through May 27th. Of the 12,731 B-17s built in the U.S., only five are still flying, including Texas Raiders. Uh, the commemorative Air Force will be uh, will visit our airport with several World War II aircraft, including a B-17, of course, we just talked about that, a P-51 fighter, Mustang, a Dauntless dive bomber, a T-6 Texan trainer, and five pass- a five-passenger Navy transport called Little Raider. And uh, details, if you want them, will be in a link that we'll post on or in the show notes for this show. So check it out if you happen to be in the uh, North Georgia area and you want to see this uh, this show. All right. Thank you, uh, Robert, for informing our group. And now let's go over here and play this. It's a fine bunch of airplanes to uh, go and watch. That would be great. Yeah. Johnny, how much more coffee? Sure thing. I love coffee. I love tea. Too bad Stephen Ivey's not here. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. That's him. I hear him. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Uh, oh, it's the coffee fun. Uh, that's actually Jeff Smith, uh, the, the good voice that you're hearing in the background. Singing the Java Jive, which is, uh, and the reason why we're doing that is because we're talking about the Coffee Fund, your way to support the show financially. And since the last episode, well, we have a couple of different ways to do it. We have one called the Coffee Fund Classic Method, basically a PayPal donation page. And we have uh, Jenny Parkinson's Jenny Parkinson in Rome, uh, Chris Randall, and David Lieb. Uh, all three uh, recurring donators via the uh, Coffee Fun Classic method. And uh, since the last show, we don't have any new patrons via Patreon, but we had a couple new ones last week, so that's just fine. So if you want to become a patron of the show, head over to patreon.com slash airlinepilotguy. Or if you forget that, you can just go to our awesome website, airlinepilotguy.com, and uh, click on the uh, coffee page and you can find all the information necessary to become part of our coffee fund cadre or coffee bar club. Captain, incoming message. 
Let's uh, start off our feedback segment with uh, this audio feedback sent in from J.J. Pittsburgh. I'm not sure where he's from. Um, oh, I know. Pittsburgh. Thanks to Philadelphia. Yeah. In West, West, Western Philadelphia, is that what you said? Okay. Uh, here we go. J.J., take it away. Greetings, APG crew. It's J.J. Pittsburgh driving around in Pittsburgh on a rainy Saturday night. Anyway, I was curious about flight hours. I understand that pilots, when they track their experience and amount of time in planes, they go by flight hours. But my question was, do you guys have a tally of the amount of flights that you've flown uh, amongst the APG crew and also, Dr. Steph, um, flying the general aviation, do you have a record of that? Because I was quite curious how many flights that you guys actually flown as a total. Or even if you have like a rough estimate, maybe. Just curious about that because I hear flight hours and after so many like hours, you just it's all kind of like doesn't really mean anything, but total flights really kind of mean something. Um, I, I guess I thought of that because I did, um, I, I drive rideshare, obviously, and one of the rideshare companies I drive for, they keep a tally of how many total rides, and I've, I think I've done like 6,000 just doing driving part-time, so I can only imagine how many flights you guys have done. And also, even like members of uh, the the crew, like Liz, I know there's like flight trackers for passengers as well. So I was curious about that. Like someone like Liz or main man Micah, how many flights they've taken. Only because I'm obviously um, not a really experienced flyer because... Honestly, I found the podcast because of a fear of flying, and I've only taken two flights in my life, and that was back over, I'd say, about 13 years ago now. So I, I look forward to getting on a plane again and adding to those two flights, which that's my total. So I, that's an easy one to remember. So anyway, I was curious about that. And once again, peace and love, peace and love. I got my second APG shirt, and I'm proudly sporting that. And uh, I actually had um, a pilot that I picked up actually ask me about the shirt, and hopefully that recruited a new fan for the podcast. So now we're going to have at least three. All right, guys. I will talk to you later. Peace and love. Peace and love. What? Three? We have three so listeners Stephanie, now? Steph is yeah, here. Absolutely. She's answering the question. Oh, Stephanie. Wow. Wait a minute. Wait a, hang on. Hang on. What? Time out. Steph is in our chat room, and, but she's not here. What, what, Steph, what are you doing? You're supposed to be here on the show. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> anyway, she says, yes, I'd have to tally up the total number of flights, though. Um, so I, apparently she does keep track of uh, individual flights. 
I did 49 loads of skydivers last weekend, but only got out of the plane like four times. So I think that if you divide 49 by four and you multiply by 72, that would give you the right answer. <laughs> I have no idea. Well, you you, you got to get the square root of that and multiply times pi, though. Oh, yeah, that's and true. And apply standard deviation, so it, uh, it's a little more complicated. Well, that would be a rounding, because in you know, a pi, it would be yeah, a rounding yeah. circular yeah, kind of. Yeah, well, and it also depends what kind of pie it is. Ooh. Lemon meringue, blueberry, apple, it kind of depends. So. Yeah, yeah. that's a good comment um, here. Yeah. Uh, Neil says, do APG shirts help you pick up pilots? I need to get to the airport. Well, all you have to do to pick up a pilot is to wink and smile. <laughs> no, just put just put a just put a can of beer and fishing line. That's it, and just drag it through the terminal. There you go. Yeah, you that works too. <laughs> oh wow, it's an interesting show for sure. <laughs> um, I don't uh, keep track. Uh, if if I got paid per flight, I would keep track of those babies, <laughs> but I don't. Oh, yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, how about you, Rick? Do you keep track of individual uh, flights? No, <laughs> no. So I, I, uh, so it's, it's interesting because it's, um, so as, as you, as you progress in your, in your, in your training and you, you come up through your, you know, your private pilot, uh, you know, certification instrument, commercial, single, multi, all that stuff, uh, your, your hours, uh, the hours that you have, then the amount of hours that you have really do count because in order for you to get to the next stage, you need to have a, a minimum number of hours. Um, and so, uh, and then at that point, uh, that really is all that matters. But as you progress in this career, um, and you make it to the airlines, so we, as, as you know, we are paid by the hour. And so that's the only reason why we keep track of flight time. Um, I don't even keep track of flight time because uh, uh to, to know how long i've been you know doing this i mean i, I honestly stopped counting how much flight time i have once i cross ten thousand hours <laughs> that was kind of that was kind of it for me uh we do however uh you have the capability of um syncing your electronic fly, um, logbook if you have one of those with whatever uh software your airline has um, your your bidding software, and so you can download your your flight time from the bidding software from the company down to your electronic logbook, and a lot of people do that. And if you're old school, you can you know can write, I guess handwrite them into a logbook. And I, I see a lot of people, particularly the older fellas, with little pocket uh, logbooks, and they'll uh, write their uh, their their uh, their flight uh, information there, and then transfer that over to their uh, big logbook at home. But uh, no, that's not something that I uh, done in a while. Uh, so, uh, and as as how many flights have I done over the last twenty years? <sighs> a lot, a lot, know, thousands. Yeah. So, yeah, me too. Um, yeah, as as Rick said, uh, basically after I got hired by Acme, I just stopped uh, entering data in a, a logbook. So, but the nice thing you is do, that you do. I'm yeah. sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. You, no, no, no. I was going to no. say that you, you do. Um, there is. So we get we get uh, we go through mer- uh, uh, medical um, exams every every six months uh, per the uh, FA requires um, captains to go through a medical exam every six months. And so mm-hmm. uh, you do enter a estimate of your flight time uh, there. Um, don't have to be, you know, down to the second. Uh, so that's 
kind of, you know, every six months I do go back and kind of look at how much I've flown in that period and then add that to whatever my total tally was uh, six months prior and kind of get a ballpark idea of what it is. But as as Jeff was saying, I don't particularly keep track of, uh, you know, down to the second. I'm looking right now at my airline's um, database management system, I think we call it. Uh, and I pulled up my category block hours and right now my, all my civilian, this is only civilian time, 20,677 hours with, uh, with ACME. And then I had a couple of thousand with the air force coming in and uh, like four or five hours in my, <laughs> my log bit before I joined the air force. Um, and, uh, yeah. So uh, you have to keep in mind though, that flight time that Jeff has, um, 20,000 hours, it's a lot of it's a lot of a lot of flight time. Yeah. Keep in mind that the um, average. What's your average flight? Um, oh, I'd say probably an hours? hour and hour and fifteen minutes. Hour and hour so and a half. half that's gonna be. Like that. That's gonna be good. Eighteen thousand. Eighteen thousand flights, perhaps, or something like that. Eighteen thousand. A lot. If, if you if you look at the uh, lots and see, lots. I have I have, I don't know. I have north of ten thousand hours. But, Mm-hmm. I, I think it's north of 11. I don't know. But then again, the, the, the average I've never, I've, I've always flown heavy long haul type flights. And so I may not have as many flight sectors, but I have, um, I mean, I've been flying for the airline since 2003, four ish. So it's only what, 17 years. Mm-hmm. But I have uh, 11, 11 ish thousand hours, half of Jeff's. But the reason behind that is because my average Long, yeah. sector is, you know, six, seven, eight hours. Right. And so um, that's why flight time really is subjective, really. It's not, it's not really a, a, uh, a measure of your experience because a lot of that time you're just sitting up there doing nothing. Whereas Jeff has, you know, been, you know, Stick on rudder eighteen, nineteen thousand times over just over over the last uh, however many years you've been at uh, at Acme, and so uh, it's it's relative, I guess. Yep. Liz says she keeps a, a logbook of all her flight. No, she didn't. She said she doesn't keep track of any of that stuff. Actually, <laughs> um, Nick, do you keep track of? Uh, did you keep track of actual yeah, individual flights or just hours? Well, or a- yeah, no, I had an electronic logbook which I kept going uh, the first one i had uh was an app on my phone and the guy that made it stopped supporting it so when i did an ios update i couldn't access it anymore and lost all that data oh, um that, that's the, the next one <laughs> when i stopped subscribing to it when i retired i now can't access that data <laughs> anymore so i'm going it's been a waste of time really i'm a bit like uh um, Rick, once uh, once I got my command and I, you know, I I was into the ten fifteen thousand hours. I really didn't pay much attention to. It. I knew the mm. the company kept a record, so if ever exactly. I needed it for legal reasons, I could go there. I left the Air Force with about uh, four thousand seven hundred. Oh, uh, wow. I must have flown about <laughs> that's, that's a ton of hours with fighters. Wow, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, well, uh, 19 years, but it's not a huge amount. But uh, um, I must have left the airline with about 17,000. Uh, wow. And um, add that on top, that's about 21,000 hours, which is not a very particularly big 
uh, total, I don't think. So lots of people have flown much more than that. And if I divided that by the, you know, the approximate number of civil hours per flight that I did, you know, around seven, eight hours, mm-hmm. must have been about 2,000 civil flights. And um, Air Force flights, well, you know, the flight's about an hour and a half, an hour, hour and a half long. Average that out, it's got to be about 4,000. Uncivil flights. Military flights, sorry. Yeah, military flights, yeah. They're very uncivil. And uh, and this is an interesting topic here because uh, a lot of people wonder how how pilots get paid. So particularly the airlines, you are paid by the hour, and it really depends on the equipment. Yeah, here in the U.S. I'm talking U.S., U.S., yeah, U.S. here. And actually interesting because when I I flew uh, uh, in Chile, uh, I wasn't paid by the hour. it It was a salary job. But here in the States, you're paid by the hour. And uh, it oftentimes uh, uh, based on the equipment that you fly, and the uh, and your seniority or, or your uh, how many years you've been with the company up to, uh, I believe it's twelve years. A lot of uh, pay scales end at twelve years, mm-hmm. and so at that point uh, you make the 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 I guess the highest possible pay per hour on that airplane, um, and you are paid. Uh, what's called uh oftentimes you don't fly um say it's say you don't fly uh you only fly three hours an entire month or four hours an entire month it's not it's not that you get paid just four hours for the entire month you always get what's called minimum guarantee and that's usually um it it depends on the company whatever contract uh, the company and uh the pilot uh, group and management has so the, the the least amount that you will get paid that month is it's it's, uh, it's guarantee which it, it varies so you multiply whatever that guarantee value is by your pay rate and that's what your pay is and then anything that you fl- say you fly more than guarantee whatever uh, you fly more than minimum guarantee over the month and so you'll get paid your guarantee and then uh, each hour over guarantee you'll get paid um, you know that as well and so uh, and then there's other things uh, overtime flying and um, training and all that so it's a little bit more complicated but Neil asks uh, so if you're uh, a bit short one month do you do a few go arounds to make up for it absolutely we ha, do. ha ha well, yeah, you can always yeah. tell an American uh, uh, crew that are being paid by the act because they taxi at about uh, three knots. Yep. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, oh. we used to get fed up. They're, tr- they're trying to make uh, an extra few dollars by taxiing slowly. So, and we, we and we uh, and we go up and then we'd like to uh, we'd like to do some holding uh, for like a half an hour or so. If you don't yeah. Mind. Just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. This is something I never understood. Uh, how come you, if you're paid by the hour rate, how come you like belting around the place in a 747 overtaking everybody? Because it's just, she just, she just, it's not ego, that we fly fast. Ego. Everybody <laughs> else flies slow. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's funny when you know, I started out at Acme uh, as a flight engineer, um, and it was before we had everything computerized. Uh, we, the flight engineers, one of, the most important job a flight engineer had at Acme back then was to do all the timesheets and keep track of them. And I say timesheets because usually each pilot was on a different, like one, like the captain may have been on a regular line, a regular schedule. The first officer might've been on a reserve schedule. So he's getting it. It's like every, all the calculations are completely different if this person's on reserve. And so anyway, I usually ended up having to do 
two or three of these sheets simultaneously. Oh, but man. I always thought, but the great thing about it is that you really learn the contract because you understand all the different credit you know, for various things. And, uh, and, oh, and by the way, if you ever expressed any kind of um, doubt about how these calculations were going, you got a lot of attention from the other crew members. <laughs> they, they made sure oh, that you got that right. And, um, but the, uh, the odd thing to me was, so like every, some captains I fly with every half an hour or so, it seems they were turning around, how are we doing with the time? You know, uh, asking how the hourly, uh, ta- tabulation was going for the flight. And then all of a sudden we'd be flying and air traffic control gives us a vector for traffic. And the guy would be going screwing himself in the ceiling, complaining that we have to go out of, out of our way to, you know, give way to something. I'm thinking, wait a minute, aren't you the same guy that like every 15, 20 minutes is asking me what our time is. And now we're actually making more time. (laughs) So, and that's the way we get paid. We get paid by the minute, basically, if you can break it down that way. And, uh, so it was always a disconnect to me. It's like the competitive nature of pilots came out when they were in the air and there are other, if I have to, I don't, I'm not going to take a vector for somebody else. No, they can take a vector for me, you know? Exactly. I'm not changing altitude, so I'm uh, right. Know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine think, here. Yeah, can, can, can the other guy go any higher? Yeah, or boss can. <laughs> do you think about you see that thunderstorm out there? Don't you think we should like deviate a, like left or right or something? And not go. Nah, I don't want to do. You know, it's like you know, I got to get there on time. Got to get there on time. We're going. You know, uh, mm. why don't we? You know, deviate. That's the nice thing about being a captain. Now uh, we deviate. <laughs> we stay clear yeah, of those deviate. darn things. Deviants. We are deviants. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. And as far as the timekeeping now, it's a lot easier because now, um, so you have um, different sensors on the airplane that are connected to the ACAR system. And so uh, we'll get, we'll, we'll start getting paid the moment the doors are closed and the brakes are released and we'll stop getting paid the moment the brakes are set and a door is opened. And so whenever that happens, the system will automatically uh, um, send that information to somewhere and that'll get interpreted a certain way and it'll tell you and actually when when you get the the the, the readout of your time off uh no your time out time off time on and time in it'll give you your flight time to the minute and your block time to the minute and that's how you'll get paid and so there's you know no more guesswork uh, there's no milk in the system none of that stuff and so um and you know, and since we don't fly around with flight engineers anymore, we don't have to uh, worry about the flight engineer not carrying the one and uh, screwing us out of uh, seven hours of pay. So uh, that's that's always nice. Yeah, yeah. Before the day that that data was gathered, we used to just print off a sheet of little strip of paper from the A cars with the uh, the flight details on. And uh, for years, I never put it into a logbook. I just put it into my bag and then every now and again I'd take a heap of these bits of paper and <laughs> throw them into a big plastic bin liner and uh, this big big bin liner got bigger and bigger as more flights were in it anyway 9-11 came along and I thought oh wow might you know might lose my job here better update the logbook make those little scraps of paper CV ready <laughs> yeah and I went into the big bin and laid out all these scraps of paper and I had no idea that, that after a couple of years the ink fades <laughs> Oh yeah, because it's, uh, it's I had a uh, bin full of white paper. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
<laughs> it's uh yeah, it's a uh, thermal paper. It's like an yeah, old fax exactly. machine. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> so how many d- hours Ooh. do you have uh, there, Captain Nick? I don't know. Yeah, good question. <laughs> I have this menu in the bin. Right? Yeah, bring the bin. Yeah. This, this piece count of paper. paper. <laughs> uh, oh man! Good well, Nancy. that was, that was uh, well. It was an interesting um, query from our JJ Pittsburgh in yeah, good one Pittsburgh. Uh, let's see. Let's move on with this one from uh, Av Eden Eden No, Ed, no. Huh? no. Nick B. Nick B. Oh, Nick B. I'm sorry. I skipped it. I was already, a, I already adva- advanced to that one. And then I went ahead and advanced again. It was a double, uh, never mind. Um, yeah. Item number four from Nick B. Uh, in reference to Robert's feedback in episode 470 about the Delta 767's sweet shoulder harness. And that's sweet as in S U I T E shoulder harness. I thought I'd interject as a resident cabin interiors technical engineer. Wow. Didn't even know there was such a thing. I guess I'd, I'd just refer to them as site cabin interiors technical engineers. My airline <laughs> uh, has also installed shoulder harnesses for herringbone installed seats as the requirements for these is driven by the seat angle and the head injury criterion, the hick, uh, in the vicinity of surrounding suite furniture, IFE screens, tray tables, etc. Captain Nick quite rightly pointed out that the seats are not for aft in layout and mentioned that airbags seat belts can be used in some cases, though the angles are just too acute for the airbag lap belts to be effective to protect from HIC, head injury criterion, uh, but the shoulder harnesses are only needed for oh, TTOL. What the heck was that again? <laughs> Don't know what that is. Did he tell us what TTOL is? Hmm. No, it's funny. Every time I every time I see a a a um, uh, acronym that I'm not familiar with, that I, I have to go back to the beginning and read the whole thing over again. Yeah. And oftentimes it's not even there. It's like, darn it, where the hell was it? Well, I guess we should just know uh, this, Rick. Right. TTOL. No, we really, well, actually, you should. I fly boxes, so uh, yeah. total uh, time over land. That's it. <laughs> I was thinking of. Um, I'll buy it. Tragic, tragic termination on landing. Oh yeah, that 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 is tragic. <laughs> anyway, I uh, hope I've explained this sufficiently. You did, Nick B, except for the TTOL part. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, on a side note, have you got any small world stories to share where you've ended up inadvertently meeting in a completely different part of the world where you first met oh. or know them from? These are commonplace in the airline industry, but the stories never grow old on me. Keep up the great work. The best three hours of entertainment each week. Thank you, Nick. Very oh, wow. nice uh, compliment. So uh, Nick, uh, our Nick, uh, uh, straightened up uh when he heard you oh, yeah, ask I've that question. I've got a couple of these. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the, f- the first was when I was still in the Air Force. And uh, bear in the mind that I'm in the Royal Air Force here in the United Kingdom. I was uh, on exchange tour in Australia. So I was flying the F-18. Uh, we did a deployment to New Zealand. So we've just landed in New Zealand. I'm literally the other side of the world. I get out of the jet, we say hello to the Kiwis, and they say, come along to the mess, Uh, we'll go to the bar and have a few beers. 
I walk into the bar and there leaning against the bar was a guy I did my flying training with in the Royal Air Force, John Fines. And I looked at him and I went, John Fines, what the hell are you doing here? And he looked at me and we just went, what? How can this be? We're <laughs> the other side of the world in this small New Zealand Air Force base bar. And he happened to be with Central Flying School, had been sent out to this base to help them standardize their flying instructors. And we just happened to be at the same base at the same time. That was <laughs> just for me, just incredible. But the, the funniest was in Narita, okay? Uh, it's the spot in the world, I think, where all airline pilots oh, meet yeah. <laughs> out in Hong Kong. But Narita's a great one. Anyway, there used to be a bar called Flyers Bar, uh, run by a lovely uh, Japanese chap called Hiroshi. Uh, and uh, I walk in there, and I suddenly look across the bar, and there is a BA crew, British Airways crew there. And there is a very big first officer, blonde curly hair, who I instantly recognized. Now, when I was a flying instructor, he was one of my students. And uh, he had a very, very nice pair of flying hats. He could do just about everything. But he matched that with a level of overconfidence and might I say arrogance so one day I just about had enough I brought him into the office and I um, basically stood him up and uh, ripped him a new one uh, and told him that no one really wants to hear his opinion on how good he is let his hands do the speaking for him we we acknowledge the fact that he's a very good pilot he doesn't need to continually go on about it and all he's doing is making himself unpopular etc etc so uh, i didn't really see much of him after that because he disappeared <laughs> off and i suddenly thought big bloke i wonder if he still <laughs> remembers <laughs> so I hope not tried to hide around the corner of the bar and had my back to him and i'm drinking a beer with my crew but of course being ba pilots they never go out with their cabin crew they always try and get in with other airline cabin crews so he eventually sauntered across to chat to our girls and spotted me and went nick anderson and i went oh my god here it comes uh and he you know, gave me a big hug, bought me a beer, and he said, you know, that chat you had with, with me that one day set me straight was one of the best things you could have done to me at that point in my career. So I thought, oh, thank the Lord for that. <laughs> and you proceeded to take the helmet off at that point and just enjoy the rest of your night. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, excellent. Yeah. And he took him outside yeah, and beat the so crap out of Nick. <laughs> well, he could have done. He, 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 was a, he was a big lad, but a very nice lad, as it turned out. So. Oh, well, that's go. that's good. You did him some good. Nice. Excellent. Uh, yeah, yeah, I did. I, I it turns out I did because I was mm -hmm. just fed up with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes hey, it just takes so somebody to say something like that to kind of like jog. That's people exactly go, what? what I was going to say. Because everybody would be probably yeah. afraid to say anything to him, especially if it was a, a very large person. Yeah. At yeah. the end of the day, you, you end up uh, doing them the, uh, the the best favor you ever could, like Nick just uh, pointed out here. And, and oftentimes, that's all it takes, you know, a little bit of yeah. a 
a little bit of right rudder there to straighten yourself out and uh you know exactly uh, right make yeah. uh make your, that, make your career a, a, a little a, bit a of guidance one. exactly all people need sometimes mm-hmm. i right. think my but best- i agree with you nick I, uh narita is uh i'm sorry go ahead nick no uh jeff no no it's talk about narita we're still on narita no i was gonna say that narita it's it's uh very and i would i would venture to say even more so than hong kong nixter because uh hong kong is quite spread out and you can be in one chai or you can be in anywhere but Narita, yeah, it's true. You have that one, that one bit of a strip, the one, you know, where the where the ramen place is, and the and the barge and the jet lag and all, and and everybody kind of hangs out in the same uh, kind of spot there. And if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna run in anybody, it's gonna be there. You know. Yeah, so, that's a good uh, point. Actually, yes. you know. yeah, yeah. I was gonna say my best small world story, whatever, is uh, Jim Mayo. Jim is a guy that. Uh, was kind of a classmate of mine uh, when I was at Auburn University. And then uh, in the Air Force, he was like a class ahead of me in pilot training. And then he uh, went off and flew um, F-15s, I think, uh, in uh, Japan. Kadena, I think, is where they where he was flying. Yeah, Kadena. Um, and uh, then, you know, I kind of lost track of him um, for, oh, no. Okay. Yeah. I lost track of him for a while. And then I, um, in, at, or at, um, survival training up in, uh, the Cascades at, uh, was it Fairchild, I think Air Force Base up there in, uh, north of Spokane. And we were doing the, uh, stuff in the, and anyway, we end up in the same little grouping and we were the only two officers, both second lieutenants at the time. And, uh, you know, like, what are you doing here? I don't know. What are you doing here? You know, and so we're grouped together. And so we, uh, that was fun. And then, uh, we ended up, um, getting out of the air force, uh, relatively the same time frame. And, uh, he's flying for, has been flying for Acme. Of course, I haven't seen him in quite some, a number of years, but I'm assuming he's still at Acme airlines. Um, he's an old geezer like me though. Maybe he retired early. I don't know, but so it seems like everywhere I turned around, he was there. It's kind of, kind of weird. He's talking to you. Yeah, well, probably not. He probably thinks. But it is great that you've had (laughs) careers that have sort of run in parallel. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, It's interesting. I had had some kind of like that happen to me, too, although I I didn't run into uh, this uh, this friend of mine uh, um, at a bar, restaurant, or or seer training or anything like that. Actually, it happened to me when I was in the uh, uh, in-dock at uh, Acme Giant. His um, good friend of mine. I went to flight school with at the um, Delta, old Delta Connection Academy down in uh, Sanford, uh, just north of Orlando. And um, uh, he stayed behind. He did the whole instructor thing and uh, went on to uh, – uh, so he instructed at the school, went on to fly for uh, Com Air, now defunct Com Air. I, um, I went down to – after I was done with flight school, I went down back down to Miami, flew, you know, just you know, a light aircraft around there, and, you know, and shortly thereafter, I ended up in South America for, you know, 13 years. And um, we come and, uh, and meet at uh, NDOT class on, uh, for the 747. That was quite the experience because uh, our, our, our careers were so different, uh, you know, his from mine. Um, and at uh, – Turned out that uh, I was really, really lucky to uh, to make the decision to not stay and, and instruct there, uh, and uh, kind of 
go down to South America, which uh, at the time was a little bit of a people were calling me crazy for <laughs> for going down there. And I ended up uh, having a, a a great time, great experience. I flew great airplanes. I never had to, you know. Uh, I, I mean, a lot of the stories that I hear from 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 guys that have to fly um, for um, for commuters, and you know, and especially after nine eleven, which was a really really rough time in aviation, going through furloughs, and um, uh, it's uh, you know, I, I I was I was I was lucky, but it was really great to see him again in school and. Um, and get get getting to fly the seven forty seven with him, you know he's still there. Um, so yeah, it's funny. There's so many pilots. You think about all the number of employed pilots in the world, but it's still a very small community. And you very do keep so. just very bumping so. into the same people over and over again. And if you've made good friends, and like one of my mates said, uh, on the on the way up. Uh, never slam doors because uh, one of these days you'll be back on the way down and you'll need the help of that person. So exactly yeah. right. And not Keep only that, friends. but but make make make. I mean, don't don't make yourself famous for the wrong reasons because yeah, you will be known industry wide, and I'm talking industry wide. Um, yes, there's, there's not, nothing better to do on a long flight than gossip about people you don't like. <laughs> exactly right. And especially nowadays with this with this world of of of, of um social media and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, podcast be very very careful and, and um, don't <laughs> yeah. I mean don't yeah. That's and that's a thing and that's just something that you should, you should, you, should, you shouldn't do not no, no, whether you're a pilot or not. You know, just don't 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 talk behind people's back and don't if don't say anything bad about somebody else if they're not there to defend themselves. Because it's just not the right thing to do. So. Absolutely. Very true. All right. Well, thank you, Nick B., for sending in that feedback and uh, spawning that great conversation. So now, Liz, is it okay if I go to number five? Yes, sir. I tried to do it earlier, and you wouldn't let me. Um, so I'm not sure how you pronounce uh, his name. A.V. Av, I'm guessing. Uh, Ed Edenen, or Edenen. Uh, he says, another view of the cranky controller. He says, uh, listened to my first episode. Good fun. Now, he sent this back, uh, let's see, you know, a while ago. A while ago. Um, and uh, we were talking, I, th- um, I don't remember exactly which episode it was, but we were talking about somebody sent in that um, YouTube video um, with the audio of this controller down somewhere in Florida, right? I think. Yeah. Um, that uh, was kind of giving people a bad time about this and that. And we thought that he was being unreasonably rude and cranky. Um, And he said that, however, you seem to side with the pilots, duh, and not with the controller after he put a clueless wonder into the penalty box. I learned from day one that when you call, you call up, you say who you are, where you are, and where you're going and what you want. And he quotes, I want to go to runway 35 is so poor a response that the pilot deserved the treatment the controller gave him. It's the instructor's job to make sure the radio work is suitable, not the controller's. One man's opinion. (laughs) Well, Av, thank you for sending the feedback. We do appreciate it. I I just have to respectfully um, uh, object, not object, um, disagree Disagree. with your with your. perspective because uh he if if the controller wanted to know where he was going as far as his destination then he probably should have used the word 
what's your destination airport, not where do you want to go? Because he really did want to go to runway 35 <laughs> to, to take off so he could go to the destination. I just thought it was very rude and short and um, uncalled for, actually. I wasn't necessarily siding with the pilots, but in this case, it just worked out that way. I mean, if a pilot had been a jerk, and by the way, I think at some point, I don't know if we're going to be able to get to it in today's show, but on uh, an upcoming episode, we're going to hear um, a pilot uh, being quite rude on the radio to a controller. Uh, so, you know, it works both ways, actually. So it's more about, you know, you just do that one next if you want to do it. Okay. 18. Okay, it is? All right. Uh, Liz is suggesting maybe we do that um, right away. Now, I didn't, um, I'm not ready for that one, <laughs> though, unfortunately. <laughs> I didn't, uh, uh, I could always try to, no, nah, I, I don't have enough time to do it. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I didn't uh, do any prep on that particular one. But okay. uh, anyway, so just keep that in mind. Just remember our little discussion about the cranky controller and Av's um, objection to our uh, perspective. And uh, what do you guys think? Okay. A lot of it comes down to how you use your language and how you treat people. Mm -hmm. uh, so treat people nice, make sure that you are asking the right question, giving the right information, and the world is a lot smoother. Yeah. Well, it's the old saying, you can catch a lot more, a lot of more flies with uh, honey than honey. something else. Vinegar. Vinegar. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'd do without Liz talking to me in my ear and giving me the right thing to say. <laughs> Thank you, Liz. All right. Um, are we, no, we're not quite close not 20 enough. 20 minutes to go. 20 more minutes. Okay. Let's do some more feedback. Um, and again, Av, thanks for sending in the feedback. We do appreciate it. hope you're continuing to enjoy our show. Probably not anymore, but anyway. Um <laughs> Ben Ippolito uh, from, I think he's down in Australia, isn't he? Uh, yep. In the Sydney yes. area, I believe. Uh, anyway, he said, regarding start locks. Okay, remember we were talking about the um, uh, the accident where the start lock wasn't or was still Three engaged. pilots talking about start locks. This I know, not a good fun. idea. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, he said that, but we do have somebody who flies turboprop stuff, and so she was trying to help us out there. She's, he said, uh, Steph is on the right path with the torque, but it's actually the prop drag that is being minimized. And he says, cue the rickets. Okay, somebody cue the rickets. As is the norm for a multi-engine uh -oh. aircraft, the prop requires positive pressure to drive the prop into fine. Singles generally work in the reverse in that they need to pressure to coarsen. In the multi-engine, this is so that a loss of oil pressure will naturally cause the prop to move for, towards a course pitch, and if not stopped, feather. In the single engine case, it's reversed because you want to keep the engine producing thrust and have an RPM overspeed situation. Uh, it's a prop hub issue. <laughs> Isn't everything? Uh, which is easier to manage than a forced landing. As Steph said, the PT-6 and other free turbines have two completely separate shafts for the gas generator and power turbine. turbine. Excuse me. Apparently, it's perfectly acceptable to hold the prop of the PT-6 still whilst it's running. I wouldn't re recommend it, though, lest it bite you. Also, this is how the ATR series aircraft get around not having an APU. They run the right engine exactly. in hotel mode with a prop brake applied. 
For engines like Garrett's venerable TPE331, it's direct drive, so the one shaft powers the compressor, turbine, and gearbox all in one. So while in the PT6 you start the gas generator and the prop follows when it can, in the Garrett you need to spin the whole box and dice from the start. And if the prop were allowed to feather, you simply can't start the engine as it can't overcome the drag without pushing the EGT into the melty zone. <laughs> the melty zone. I've seen a Metroliner that had a prop jump the locks, aka the locks weren't quite in correctly on start, and it went into feather and created quite the hung start. Hmm. Uh, it's, a nor it's normal to select some reverse on shutdown to get the locks in. It's uh, a game of oil pressure versus RPM. Don't be slow. And then after you start, you'll hear them select reverse briefly on each engine to ensure the lock clears. However, there's no cockpit indication uh, of if they are or in or not. But you'll get strange indications when you go to full RPM and power up for takeoff, like low torque and very high EGT, which I believe was the case in this uh, accident that we were talking about, which kind of spurned the whole or uh, brought up the whole start lock discussion. Mm. Um, it's possible to taxi the Metro with locks in, but you'll quickly find issues if you try to depart. Because it's a <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because it's direct drive, the Garrett's run at higher prop RPM than other turboprops, as the compressors need a certain minimum speed to be happy. So the difference between taxi and takeoff prop RPM is very small, and the blade angle does does a lot of the work. Unlike the free turbines, which can taxi with lower RPM and then it increases on takeoff with the increased gas flow. Because Jeff and Nick haven't flown piston props. Interesting to note that piston twins also have start locks, just they are flight weight driven. This is why you need to feather before the engine goes below a certain minimum RPM. Otherwise, the lock will be in and it'll be impossible. Thanks to Rick for the rickets, which everyone would be hearing by now. So I guess we need to go ahead and play that right now. So let me see if I can. It's probably going to take me five minutes to find the darn thing. I can't even find the darn app. Okay, here we go. Rickets are coming up. Here we go. That's a rim shot, not Rickets. I just hit, <laughs> I was hoping that Rickets would be uh, R, but it's not. I have to hit C for crickets. Here we go. I should probably play that longer. I'm just, oh, go on then. There we go. Very good. I'm just going to say fly weight, not flight weight. Jeff. Oh, I'm sorry. They're fly weight because they're they're a pair of weights. I think. Oh, in fly the weight prop okay. mechanism. Yeah, that uh, that are centrifugally um, positioned. Ah, okay. Uh, so as the prop slows, those come towards the center and move I things. But okay. I, I only did about I don't know uh, ten hours on um, twin. Uh, propeller driven thing to get my initial instrument mm -hmm. rating when I left the Air Force. So I don't really know much about it. <laughs> well, apparently you know more than I do. No, right. I just read it. Uh, so I just oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes I just, uh, I, I read a couple different words together and then I just make up new words because that's just a, that's just a talent I have. Um, all right. Well, thank you, Ben, for that and putting half of our audience to sleep. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I did nice that. one. <laughs> All right. Uh, I like the melty zone. Yeah, I like the melty zone too. That's very cool. 
Mm. Uh, try to avoid that melty zone if you can. Mm. Um, David has a China update for us. He says, hi, team. I've recently started listening to your entertaining ramblings from my home in Beijing, China. While I applaud your enthusiasm, it seems you could use a little help on a couple of points China-related. Number one, Hong Kong is basically not part of China for aviation purposes. Last episode, you seemed fairly confused about why Cathay Pacific was suffering so badly when domestic Chinese aviation is booming. If I wanted to make a trip to Hong Kong from, from Beijing or indeed anywhere else in mainland China, I'd go to the international Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Macau terminal of the airport. I'd have to do two weeks hotel quarantine in Hong Kong when I arrive and another two weeks hotel quarantine when I return to China. In contrast, I can fly to, uh, let me see, does he have that? Shenzhen? That's an easy one. Um, I'm looking, he has a pronunciation guide for me. Guangzhou? Or anywhere else that's a proper domestic flight without even doing any COVID tests. Long story short, there's no such thing as a domestic flight from Hong Kong. Uh, Number two, your pronunciation of Chinese city names is entertaining, but almost always wrong. (laughs) Thank you. You're not the first person that's told me that. Um, He says, no offense. No offense taken, by the way. Uh, Please cut out and keep my phonetic pronunciation guide to major Chinese airports. I do need, I'll make a... um, a digital post-it note or something <laughs> so I can Good keep idea. these handy. Uh, well, no, you know what, Liz? I think you should do that. And then you can just, in my ear, tell me how to pronounce okay, these things. I can do that. Okay. I can do that. Um, so here we go. Um, Guangzhou is Guangzhou. Sheng, Chengdu, Shenzhen. Uh, Beijing's Daxing, uh, D-A-X-I-N-G airport, P-X-X, P-K-X, excuse me. Uh, yes, just think of uh, Christmas and dashing through the snow. Oh, dashing through the Beijing. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, Chong King. Oh, Chong King. I used to eat that all the time when I was a kid. Um, yeah, oh, I like this, it too. Um, let's see. Chong Ching. Um, K-U-N-M-I-N-G. Kun Ming. Kun Ming. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Uh, Shanghai's, yep. ooh. Huh, uh, S-H-A airport, H-O-N-G-Q-I-A-O, Hongqiao, Hongqiao, uh, X-I apostrophe A-N, which is uh, X-ray India Yankee, is Xi'an, Xi'an, okay, um, and all those clay, clay warriors. Oh, the clay warriors, yeah, cool. I was thinking Marianne, though, in the Gil- in Gil- Gilligan's Island. Oh, she's cool, too. That, I, I was just a little distracted <laughs> there. Sorry. Um, and uh, I like Marianne better than Ginger. Uh, Hangzhou. Uh, Hangzhou. Okay, so I've, I've been mispronouncing that. <laughs> That's a big surprise. Hangzhou. Very good. Um, thank you very much, uh, David, for the pronunciation guide and for kind of explaining why we were a little bit off the mark when it comes to Chinese domestic flying. I thought that yeah. China kind of absorbed Hong Kong again, but I guess not. Not really. As far as aviation is concerned, I guess. Yeah. 
Okay. So, Jeff, you've got 10 minutes, but maybe we'll go to the plain tale now because the next one's kind of long. It's that flying under the bridge thing, and that okay. might take a while, don't you think? So Liz is talking to me right now. I'm not having a stroke. Um, she's suggesting that uh, we do the plain tale now uh, because uh, some of the remaining um, pieces of feedback are a little bit on the long side, and maybe by then Rick will be back. So he had to leave us for a few moments. So why don't we play this week's installment of the old pilot's plane tales, this one entitled Mutiny. The old pilot's plane tales, Mutiny. Air law is something that all pilots must have some knowledge of, or they wouldn't be awarded a license or a certificate. It's required. Having said that, It's a long way from being simple, and even a qualified air transport pilot will only have scratched the surface, yours truly included. So take what I say here with these caveats. The air laws that affect you depend on many factors. For example, the country your airline is based in, the country your aircraft is registered in, the country it is actually in, and in the past, even the country you were flying over at the time. The law also depends on what conventions those countries are signatories to, because there are many. Air law pretty much kicked off when man first took to the air, in a balloon, mind you, as air-cushioned vehicles are not regarded as aircraft by the International Civil Aviation Organization. The laws of the Romans in the maxim, who owns the land owns even to the skies, and other ancient laws generally granted the landowner all rights to the air above and the earth below. Had this continued, flight just about anywhere would have been extremely expensive, as was demonstrated following the first few flights by the Montgolfier brothers and other early balloonists, who were tried in common law several times for overflying land that didn't belong to them. The first law specifically pertaining to aircraft was enacted in Paris in 1784, and was an ordinance of one Lenore, a lieutenant de police, in Paris, prohibiting balloon flights without special permits. This was quickly followed by similar enactments in Namur and Hamburg. The first regulation for safety in air navigation was made in 1819 by Count de a police prefect of the scene department, requiring balloons to be equipped with parachutes and prohibiting aeronautic experiments during the harvest. I'm assuming that the parachutes were to be worn by the balloonists and not the balloon. Even back in 1819, people realized how risky ballooning was. In 1908, the Council of Kissimmee City in Florida enacted the first air traffic regulation, which stated that the airspace subject to the legal control of the city extended upwards to a limit of 20 miles. The first customs regulations for aviation were brought in in 1909 by the French Prime Minister, imposing duties on balloons from abroad, and this is when international laws kicked off. In January 1822, the first case of a tort committed by an aviator was decided by the New York Supreme Court. A balloonist had made a forced descent upon the plaintiff's land and attracted large crowds who trespassed thereon and caused damage. It was held that the defendant was liable in trespass. 
with these worrisome balloonists going around causing trouble, a uniform set of international laws were obviously needed, and there followed a tedious number of conventions, starting in Paris with the 1919 one and followed by many others. A biggie was the Chicago Convention in International Civil Aviation in 1944, when it was decided that airspace was an appurtenance of associated with the subject territory and shares the latter's legal status. However, like the high seas, airspace over the oceans should be free up to the limits of outer space. The Chicago Convention also laid down the tedious requirement for the pilot of every aircraft and the other members of the operating crew of every aircraft engaged in international navigation shall be provided with certificates of competency and licenses issued or rendered valid by the state in which the aircraft is registered and there shall be maintained in respect of every aircraft engaged in international navigation a journey logbook in which shall be entered particulars of the aircraft, its crew, and of each journey. Most of this was actually maritime law, with maritime crossed out and aviation penciled in. Now we come to the crunch part for those of you who like to get drunk on an airliner and scream at the crew. For a long time, the failure of states to extend their criminal laws to their aircraft whilst they were outside national territory posed a serious problem. When a crime has been committed on an international flight, things got complicated. It wasn't until 1963 that the Tokyo Convention on Offences and certain other acts committed on board aircraft that things were settled. Contracting states were obliged to extend their criminal law and jurisdiction to aircraft of their registry when they were outside national territory. The convention, furthermore, gives the aircraft commander power to ensure law and order on board his aircraft and to disembark any offender in any contracting state in which the aircraft lands. Initially, illegal acts against an aircraft, for example seizing it, were treated like piracy, but walking the plank or hanging from the yardarm was a problem on an aircraft, so we got our own thing, hijacking. It became the responsibility of the state in which the aircraft lands to take all appropriate measures to restore control of an aircraft hijacked in flight to its lawful commander. What's more, the commander of an aircraft now has final authority as to the disposition of the aircraft while in command. This specifically empowers the commander to override any other regulation in an emergency. This provision mirrors the authority given to the captains of ships at sea with similar justifications. It essentially gives the commander the final authority in any situation involving the safety of a flight, irrespective of any other law or regulation. After the dust has settled, however, there better be a reasonable explanation ready at hand. In the military, one might have assumed that things would have been pretty tight and mutiny unheard of. Let me set you straight there. There are a few that I know of, so let's start with the U.S. Army Signal Corps Pilot Revolt of 1915. It was the early days of fixed-wing aviation in the U.S. Army, and the story revolves around the court-martial of Judge Advocate Lieutenant Colonel Goodyear. 
The Signal Corps had taken an interest in ballooning and then fixed wing, with the purchase of some right military flyers and later some air machines from Glenn Curtis. The manufacturers initially provided flight instruction for officers, but Army policy only allowed them to be detached from their primary job for four years, at the end of which they had to return to their infantry, cavalry, artillery or whatever. This Manchu law, as it was known, made it very difficult to develop a pilot force with long-term flying expertise. Additionally, much angst developed amongst the pilots over the administration of flight pay, seen as a form of hazardous duty pay, given that one in four pilots were being killed in aircraft accidents. An unhealthy competition soon grew between pilots trained in Wright aircraft versus those trained in Curtis ones. Aircraft accidents, sometimes fatal, generated blame between the two camps. To add to the problems, the Brigadier General moved all flight training operations to North Island, California, and established a new Signal Corps flying school under a Captain Arthur Cowan. Cowan was a signals officer who had absolutely no knowledge of aviation operations whatsoever. Problems with his junior pilots soon arose, Cowan would accuse his lieutenants of unauthorised stunting when accomplishing a simple go-around or flying dangerously over hangars when setting up for a landing. Often he singled out particular junior pilots as targets of his ire. He also opposed requests for experiments with firing machine guns or dropping bombs from aircraft. Cowan even mismanaged his budgets for spare parts and then blamed his subordinates for not keeping the aircraft airworthy. After a few years of such mistreatment, the young officers discovered that Cowan had been drawing flight pay without being a pilot. Several junior pilots drew up charges against him and took them to Judge Advocate Lieutenant Colonel Goodyear. Cowan's connections at Signal Corps headquarters ensured that the charges would be dropped and then the Signal Corps leaders charged the Judge Advocate with inappropriately advising the lieutenants. Prosecutors then made the mistake of asking the young pilot witnesses open-ended questions that allowed them to expose Cowan's poor leadership and the Signal Corps' mismanagement. The press and Congress had a field day. Goodyear was merely reprimanded and an inspector general soon exposed the flight school's shortcomings. The resulting National Defence Act of 1916 created an environment that properly prepared an air service for action in the First World War and prevented the United States Air Force from still being called the U.S. Signal Corps Aviation Balloon and Airplane Flying Division thing. A more serious subject was the 1945 Freeman Field Mutiny at Freeman Army Airfield, a base near Seymour, Indiana. Before and during the Second World War, the U.S. military, like much of American society, was segregated by race. But in response to pressure from leaders such as Philip Randolph and Walter White, President Roosevelt opened the Air Corps to black men who volunteered to become fighter pilots. The story of the Tuskegee Airmen should be well known to us all by now. But other units were also formed, such as the 477th Bombardment Group flying B-25 Mitchells. With only 175 officer crew members, they were badly undermanned, and some believe that the Army were holding the unit back from full combat readiness. Segregation was a major source of poor morale, 
as the commander of the 1st Air Force, despite regulations to the contrary, insisted on strict social segregation of black and white officers. The officers' clubs were supposed to be open to all officers, regardless of race, but the club at Selfridge was closed to black officers, a situation that led to an official War Department reprimand being issued to the Selfridge base commander. The 477th were abruptly moved to Goodman Field at Fort Knox, where the officers' club was open to blacks, Not that it made them feel any better, as the white officers had moved to the club at Fort Knox instead, as it was restricted to only those with guest memberships. Now at full strength, a return to Freeman Base was ordered, and it became apparent that there were now two officers' clubs on the base. Number one for trainees, all of whom were black, and number two for instructors, all of whom were white. Second Lieutenant Coleman Young, the future mayor of Detroit, decided to challenge the segregation, and with a group of black officers entered the number two club to seek service. They were turned away, and the armed officer of the day was posted at the door to prevent entry to the black officers. When 19 black officers of the 477th returned, they were arrested and confined to quarters, as were another 17 later. The next night, another 25 officers were arrested during a two-day protest. In the end, a total of 61 serving officers, all black, were charged. A regulation was drawn up, and all the officers of the 477th were told to read and sign it, acknowledging the requirement to stay away from the instructors' club. They were ordered to read and sign or face arrest under the 64th Article of War for disobeying a direct order by a superior officer in time of war, an offence that technically could be punished by death. In the end, 101 men were arrested for failing to sign. Pressure from Congress, labor unions and African-American organization was brought to bear on the War Department and finally the Chief of Staff, General George C. Marshall, ordered the men released. Three officers accused of shoving the officer of the day received General Courts Marshall and although two were acquitted, the third, Second Lieutenant Roger Terry, was fined $150, suffered a loss of rank and was dishonorably discharged. Three years later, President Harry S. Truman issued Executive Order 9981, racially integrating the United States Armed Services. In 1995, in response to requests from veterans of the 477th, the Air Force officially removed letters of reprimand from the permanent files of 15 of the 104 officers charged in the Freeman Field protest, and promised to remove the remaining 89 letters when requests were filed. Roger Terry received a full pardon, restoration of rank, and a refund of his fine. A year later, it was the Royal Air Force's turn to suffer the ignominy of a mutiny. At the end of the Second World War, the slow progress of demobilization was a major problem for the armed services, particularly for those who had been pressed into service. They wanted to return to their civilian lives and find decent jobs before the thousands who were returning ahead of them filled the few vacancies. 
The return to civilian life depended on a DMOB number, based on the length of service, and for many, particularly those serving abroad, it meant a long wait. As the months dragged on, with rumours of transport being used to move GI brides to America, whilst the RAF men sat in Karachi, waiting in vain, they began to hold secret meetings on the football pitch in the dark. They voted for a leader to take their grievances to the commanding officer. The mutiny started, mildly enough, as a protest by refusing to prepare kit for inspection and go on parade in casual khaki drill rather than best blues. There is no doubt that men held away from friends and family in pretty dismal conditions, heat, flies and poor food, when the war was over, had pretty low morale, and this was a small protest. On the next parade, as the mutineers spread around the parade ground in their khakis, the CO came and started to speak to them and listen to their complaints. He promised to take their messages higher. Eventually, a delegation were selected to meet the Air Commodore from Delhi, who listened and then agreed to meet nearly every problem that the men brought up. A petition pleading for faster demobilisation was sent to the Prime Minister, Food and accommodation were improved and many of the tedious drills and parades cancelled. The men at Karachi were content, but news of their rebellion had spread, and at the height of the strike, nearly 50,000 men at over 60 RAF stations in India, Ceylon and as far away as Singapore stopped obeying orders. Although some of the ringleaders at other stations faced courts martial and the unrest was ultimately quelled, mainly through negotiation. The men had fought a war, and they wanted to go home. Everybody understood. However, the precedent set instigated subsequent actions by both the Royal Indian Air Force and Navy, when 78 out of 88 ships mutinied. The Viceroy of India commented at the time, I am afraid that the example of the Royal Air Force who got away with what was really a mutiny, has some responsibility for the present situation. At its height, the 1946 Royal Air Force strike extended beyond Southeast Asia, through the Middle East to Egypt and North Africa, even as far as Gibraltar. However, in all cases, the mutinies remained peaceful. So, I'm wondering if Captain Nick chose this title because they're planning some sort of a mutiny here at uh, the APG. <laughs> we're going to have a takeover. <laughs> Either that or we're just going to uh, stop pitching up, like Rick. <laughs> they haven't been hired yet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Rick has just decided to, you know, self-mutiny, I guess. <laughs> he's, he's had enough, yeah. I'm not uh, obeying orders anymore. Yeah. I guess I'm just a cruel dictator, and he just had had enough of it. <laughs> scary ogre. Yeah, I'm a fair, scary ogre for sure. <laughs> yeah, very, very nice, uh, interesting one. Um, yeah, lots of lots of historical data in there that I I didn't know anything well, about. Well, those origins of our laws, uh, yeah, that that basically, uh, you know, 
they've transferred most of them transferred from the maritime world right uh, but uh, yeah it I, I you know I tried to make head or tail of them mm-hmm. and uh, you know it became a, a mire of uh, language and that's yeah. the problem with uh, legal language unless you've been trained to understand exactly what these terms uh, mean you can get yourself in a complete tangle so yeah I moved away from trying to describe air law into talking about mutinies, which seemed yeah. a, lot <laughs> a lot easier to figure yeah, that one out. Yeah. You know what's going on, but I, I, I tried to pick three mutinies that, that although one of them has had, uh, you know, is very serious in what we see now uh, occurring uh, in both of our countries. Um, the other two are, are quite tongue in cheek, I think. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you, Nick. So, Jeff, you've got uh, that was, uh, 50, five zero minutes left. Five minutes. zero minutes left. I'm I'm hearing from the control room. So, fifty that's minutes. Good. Wow, yes, we can yeah, knock out uh, get quite a, a lot, quite a few of these things, right? All right. So, uh, let's continue on then with uh, something that was sent in a while back from Mazuts, uh, one of our um, Coffee Fun Cadre members. Um, and uh, Mazutz Karim, and it is, uh, well, I'll just start reading from the top. Hope you are all keeping well. You certainly all continue to sound cheerful every week and brighten up the life of this listener on the other side of the pond, as well as Ooh. all the rest of your audience, I'm sure. I came across this news story the other day, and then he gives us a link to that, and uh, it was um, something, a title about... Um, Bridge stunt leads to ADSB revocation. Let me continue reading his feedback. That was the uh, the headline, which is a confusing headline, actually. Um, I'm not sure if this is the type of thing that you would normally consider, but I would be interested in your view on this incident about a highly inexperienced, excuse me, a highly experienced pilot instructor examiner who succumbed to a spur-of-the-moment urge to fly under a bridge and is now appealing the sanctions being imposed against her. Also, I just wanted to say a special thank you to Captain Nick for his most recent plane tale, the S to Z of aviation. As someone who has the last letter of the alphabet appearing twice in his name, Mazutz, I have uh, often an interesting time when asked to spell it when visiting the U.S., depending on how mischievous or keen on promoting UK pronunciation I'm feeling at the time. <laughs> of course, I have to choose my moments carefully. In view of my ethnic Very background, uh, whenever I fly into the U.S., I'm all, almost always blessed by being invited into the back room for a couple of hours hospitality, courtesy of the U.S. border officials. Probably not the uh, best time to have a discussion. inspection. Yeah, the uh, bane not- of our life. If you're an international crew trying to get into uh, America, it's uh, uh, a shame. Um, <laughs> this said, said with feeling. <laughs> that is a shame. It's a better. It's um, a little better. No, yeah. I mean, I I don't think this is very fair at all. Probably not the best time to have a discussion about language and pronunciation. Yeah, probably probably best yeah. to keep it uh, <laughs> yes. simple, right? yes keep up the great work and i believe the customary sign off is talons douglas (laughs) you're right very best wishes mazuz karim and uh so let's uh let's tackle this um this issue this article that he uh sent 
uh, a link to for us. Again, the title, uh, the headline here, I'm, I'm guessing that the person that wrote this was not the person uh, who came up with this, t- this uh, headline because it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and this is from AvWeb. Um, so again, the, t- the headline is Bridge Stunt Leads to ADSB Revocation. Um, a well-known Ohio pilot and aviation columnist may be the first to run afoul of a new regulation triggered by the ADSB mandate enacted in 2020. Uh, Martha Lunken, 78, who pens a popular column in Flying Magazine and is a fixture in Midwest aviation, flew under a bridge near her home airport, which bears her name, in southern Ohio in March of 2020. Uh, an impulsive and immature stunt, she told Avweb, she knew was wrong. But she said a coincidental malfunction of her Cessna 180's transponder with ADS-B out may have resulted in her being slapped with an emergency revocation of all her certificates instead of the suspension that normally accompanies each or such transgressions. So, to be clear, the bridge stunt that she did led to her certificate revocation, not her ADS-B. I'm pretty sure she still has the ADS-B in her airplane. Anyway, Lunkin said that after she had crossed flying uh, flying under a bridge from her bucket list, she headed home and checked in with Cincinnati Approach and was told her transponder was off. She said she reset it and set a new code and it resumed working. In their subsequent investigation, FAA officials said that she'd shut it off on purpose to stop the system from tracking her while she threw caution to the wind. Lunkin, a longtime former FAA safety inspector and veteran flight instructor, vehemently denies the charge. I know what I did in that cockpit, and I did not turn it off. Talking about the ADSB. The agency used a new section of its Legal Enforcement Actions Guidebook for FAA staff, which calls for revocation of a certificate for operating an aircraft without activated transponder or ADSB out transmission uh, for the purposes of evading detection. The section was added in a package of other amendments in January of 2020, just after ADSB became mandatory in most control airspace, controlled airspace, and about two months before Lunkin's flight of fancy. The section is on page 9-14 at the bottom. Okay, Lunkin said she took the 180, uh, Cessna 180, to her avionics tech, who said the transponder seemed to be loose in its mount when he took it out. It tested fine on the bench and after it was reinstalled. The FAA interviewed the tech. Lunkin said that the tech was unable to tell them whether the device was malfunctioning during the flight. She said now it's her word against the FAA's on whether the intermittent ADS-B out signal was a malfunction or a deliberate violation. She said radar tracks that were part of the evidence against her showed the ADS-B signal from her aircraft to be intermittent. She speculates she jarred the connections loose during a few bone-jarring landings in, a gusty, in gusty crosswinds. crosswinds. I had made several rather brutal landings at OH-77, the 32-foot-wide concrete crosswind strip just north of the bridge, and it was bumpy at low levels, she said. I did not turn it off. Uh, she spent 60 years flying in that area, and that she was, if she was trying to prevent Big Brother from watching her do something, there are myriad e- easier and virtually undetectable ways to do it. The FAA declined comment 
and suggested AvWeb submit a Freedom of Information Act request to review the agency's evidence supporting their findings. A spokesman said that's agency policy on legal matters. As for the stunt itself, which has been the focus of most of the social media attention and reaction, she said it was just a silly spur-of-the-moment thing. I looked over my left shoulder, I saw the bridge, and I thought, I just have to fly under that bridge before I get old. (laughs) I love that. She's 78 years old. Uh, The Jeremiah Morrow Bridge is 239 feet above the Little Miami River Gorge, and Lunkin said she didn't have to draw very heavily on her 14,000 hours of experience to get to the other side. It certainly didn't take any skill, she said. As for it being a reflection of her attitude towards safety and the regs, she said nothing could be further from the truth. It's not part of a pattern of behavior, and I'm not an irresponsible pilot, she said. I would never have put anyone in danger. A security camera snapped a picture of her passage, and the FAA sent her a letter a few weeks later saying that they were investigating. Anyway, it goes on to talk about, um, well, heck, I'll just read the rest of it because we've already come this far and we're getting close to the end. Uh, She said she expected to be sanctioned, thinking she might have to sit out for a period of weeks or months. FAA enforcement guidelines call for a period of suspension of 30 days to four months for the bridge stunt, which is a violation of of altitude and distance from objects regs. I knew it was illegal, and I did it anyway, she said. I'm 78, and I'm still not very mature, (laughs) and I hope I never am. When she didn't hear anything after six months, she thought that the FAA had dropped the matter. The emergency revocation letter was delivered March 19th. Lunkin said she's considered appealing the revocation, but her lawyers estimated the cost at $25,000. Instead, she's spending her time watching from the ground while others fly and hitting the books to reclaim her private pilot certificate. Revocation cancels all certificates and ratings. She she was all the way up to an ATP, uh, and she has to start over to get back in the air. So far, it's been an eye-opener as she studies for the written A lot has changed in 60 years, she said. Normally, a revocation prevents the guilty party from taking flight training for a year, but her legal team negotiated a three-month reduction. I'll be a student pilot in December, she said. Lunkin will also be on hiatus from Flying Magazine for an unspecified period of time, but will write a column in the August issue explaining the incident. She said she has kept her editors informed of all developments in her case, which flying officials confirmed. So there you go. That's the uh, case. She uh, decided that uh, that bridge looked awfully um, uh, um, tempting. Thank you. Inviting. And yeah. inviting. Yeah. And uh, so she said, yeah, what the heck? I'm going to go for it. And um, apparently they think that she was trying to be extra sneaky and turned her ADSB off intentionally to hide the tracks. And uh, she said, nope, that's not the case. But uh, yeah, so she had her. Her uh, ratings uh, revoked, and now she's going to have to go back to uh, from square one to get all. I mean, if I were her, you know, being seventy-eight years old, I'd think, yeah, I had a good run. Uh, I'm good. <laughs> but apparently, she uh, she's quite um, a stubborn person. What do you it, think? It's now? an interesting one, isn't it? Because it it is an incredible coincidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just as she decided to do this illegal uh, flying maneuver, her ADSB turned off. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's no physical evidence to say to support her theory mm-hmm. that it was intermittent. Uh, it would appear 
um, you know, from someone outside of this environment that she turned it off, flew under the bridge and, you know, assumed that she would not be tracked. So mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. She's admitted flying under the bridge. I'm actually surprised that the um, the maximum penalty she would have received for that was so little. Mm -hmm. I would have thought that would have been quite a serious breach of air regulations, but apparently not. But turning off your uh, ASB um, and the fact that they've said, look, we're happy to give you all the legal uh, and uh, all the evidence we have to support our case mm -hmm. if you just apply for a freedom of information makes me think that the FA probably haven't got much to hide. Yeah, There's probably no uh, conspiracy here. They're, they're doing what they think is right. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I have to say, since she was offering advice to other people as an instructor and as a contributor to uh, a famous um, flight magazine, I find this actually very hard to justify um, yeah. her decision to to do this. I I just don't understand that at all. I it almost compute for me. Yeah, it almost sounds like she took a uh, an educated or um, a calculated risk. Um, for doing this, thinking, well, I know what the penalty is if I do this, and to me, it's worth it. But she had not counted upon the uh, the enforcement action uh, in connection with the uh, with the ADSB being intentionally turned off. And uh, interesting yeah. point from Ludger here. Oh, Ludger I mean, has the, an interesting the, point. He said the problem is yeah, the new rule. ADSB yeah. is for safety, not a prosecution tool. Hmm. Yeah. Well, the fact is it wasn't used as a prosecution tool uh, because they had no data for it. Yeah. So had she lifted on and they used the data from the ADSB to back up their assertion that she went under the bridge, mm -hmm. that would have been a prosecution tool. The That's fact true. that there was no ADSB trace shows that it wasn't being used in that thing. What they did was say... Uh, what you did was illegal, and to prevent you being caught, you turned the ADSB off. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a that violation a in two areas. So uh, I, I don't think it's it's fair to resist the use of ADSB with on the grounds of this case. Personally, right. that's Question just my opinion. And we do also, you know, they said that the they had the the photographic evidence of the security camera you know, showing her clearly. Yeah, she you know, might not have realized that was there. Probably she not. might not have done it. <laughs> Darn it, I didn't know no. they have a camera. <laughs> um, exactly right. Let's see, Neil says. I mean, could, people have flown under all sorts of bridges, haven't they? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you talked about it on but, the plane tales a few times, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that, but that's yeah. way back. Right. We're not talking modern times, so... Mm -hmm. You know, people know you're not supposed to do that kind of thing. It's, right. And I don't care how good a pilot you are. Uh, it's it, it carries an increased element of risk that is completely unnecessary. So, okay, well, hang on a second. Let me uh, get my piece of paper out here and scratch this thing off my bucket list. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, on your last flight, <laughs> right, on, on this 717, you've got to do it. You've got to <laughs> of find course. a bridge to I'm gonna, fly. I'm going to do a barrel roll. Keep it all 1G, you know, of course. Oh, yeah, perfect. Um, See if you can do it without spilling all the drinks. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm definitely going to go for that. Just kidding. Uh, Neil uh, asks, could she have arranged to do this legally? 
uh, if it was a bucket list thing. Yeah, I think uh, there's a legal provision for bucket list thing. flying. No, I don't know. Um, no, I, I certainly think, uh, you know, film companies and uh, stunt pilots, you know, uh, red... Um, Oh, it gives you wings, you know, that, that drinks company. Mm -hmm. Their flying teams do these kind of stunts all Red the time. Bull. Red Bull. They must, yeah, Red Bull. They must have provisions to be able to get an authorization right. for Yeah, it. I think there is a way but, to do it. There's probably a process, and it's probably not granted for everyone, of course. But, uh, yeah. There, one last uh, point from Ludger here. Okay, one last point from Ludger. Uh, same thing in Germany. As soon as you stray into any airspace, you're fined. Consequently, people turn it off. Hmm. Naughty, naughty, you Germans. Well, I wonder if there's the same penalty if you turn know. off your ADSB. I don't know. Interesting. Interesting um, story. Interesting questions. Interesting coincidence. Or is it? We'll have yeah. to or, yeah. visit this story again. I see what happens. Yeah, I, I'm going to keep an open mind, but yeah. I know which way I'm trending. Okay. Uh, Masha's got a last Masha point. Masha has the last point. It's legal if you're Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> way to go, Masha. Yes. Exactly. All right. Uh, good, good, good. So let's continue on with uh, this. Now I'm going to try to, while we're covering this, um, Maybe get some quick, uh, pictures uh, set up for you. Maybe, uh, Nick, can you uh, start off with reading uh, feedback from Ray? Absolutely. This is uh, from Ray uh, Williams uh, in Alpharetta, which is not far from you, I think. That's Just very... under the bridge. Yeah, well, right. <laughs> yeah, probably a bridge well, there the, somewhere. Near the, near the dead chicken. Yeah, well, no. I'll just move on with his feedback. Okay, fair enough. I was <laughs> listening to episode 470 earlier today, and as usual, I enjoyed the plain tales. Very kind of you. Especially Captain Nick's reference to the Fletner Synchropter. Uh, back in the Halcyon days of 2016, there was an APG meetup at Tokoa. I know how to pronounce that one. Tokoa. Tango, sorry, Kilo Tango Oscar Charlie up north in Georgia. It was November and there were some forest fires in the area. Back on a small ramp in the northeast corner of the aerodrome was a Carmen K Max K 1200 Syncropter. Serial number Alpha 940027. November 115 of Central Copters Incorporated. In some of the attached photos, the lifting cable can be seen. It was attached to a collapsible bucket with which it would scoop up water and uh, scuba divers from a dam or similar and then go drop it on the fire. As Captain Nick mentioned, the V-aligned shafts meant that the rotor blades were low at the sides of the copter, and there's a prominent warning on the rotor assembly body. Uh, what's it say? Have you found that one, Jeff? Which one? Ah, warning. Approach the, the warning. Warning right approach from there front. There you go. Central Copters, Inc. Yeah. Um... Let's hope that with the new vaccines and more people getting vaxxed, 
we can get back to having more meetups like the one we had at, where was it? Tokoa. Tokoa, thanks. Take care, folks. Stay safe. Later. Ray Williams. Well, isn't that great? Thanks very much, because it's fascinating. I have never seen one of these, but particularly that last one, the one with all the blood splattered on the fuselage. <laughs> it's, it's an attractive-looking helicopter. You can see how dangerous <laughs> it is. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, it's obviously taken a few heads off. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a worry. It's that last one. Yeah. That's the one I was thinking of. Right. Yeah. Um, let me go back. With to all it. the globules of blood. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's very, uh, yeah, very messy. Splattered down the fuselage. Yeah. It's a bloody mess, so as you like, you guys would say. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever, if you ever approach one of these, hands and knees. That's what you need. Come in on your hands and knees. Yeah. Or just stay but away from it completely. It's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, this is the perfect uh, use for it because of its ability to carry a, a heavier load than a conventional uh, tail-rated helicopter um, because, obviously, it wants to carry a large weight of water. Yeah. True. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Good Thank pictures. you. Thank you, uh, Ray Williams, my neighbor to the north in Alpharetta. Um, Robert. Uh, writes in. He is from Australia. Uh, he says, "More join the race for a su for supersonic flight." Uh, is this a new era of aviation emerging? Emerging? And he sent us a link to a simpleflying.com article. Australia joins the race for a supersonic flight. A Ukrainian-Australian joint venture is eyeing supersonic passenger flights across the Pacific. A low-profile Australian company with space and supersonic aspirations has teamed with a Ukrainian engine designer and jet engine manufacturer to push the boundaries of commercial passenger flights. Anyway, we'll have a link to this article in the show notes if you want to read the whole thing. But... Um, it's interesting. It looks like everybody's wanting to get into this uh, supersonic game. Is there any uh, activity over there, Nick, in uh, the United Kingdom or any other European? Only that uh, Richard Branson of Virgin uh, has put some money towards, I think, the Boom uh, project. Yeah. Okay. There was, um, but um, other than that, no. Okay. But this looks like a substantial airplane, a hundred seater. Mm -hmm. uh, can get from uh, Sydney to LA in six hours. So, yeah, uh, so it's a larger, instead of the ones that we've been reading about or talking about are, are more like business class, you know. the, the That's right, yeah. Really, Boom, supersonic, that's the mm -hmm. one I think that Branson's uh, interested and then in. Arion is the one that is down um, in Melbourne, Florida. Um, and oh, wow. I think that they have some support from... Airbus. Exosonic. Yeah. Yeah. Cosmovision is an interesting name. I guess it's mm -hmm. more Ukraine than Australian, but uh, yeah. Uh, they all seem to be very similar, all very Concorde-like. Some of them have uh, podded underwing engines, a bit like this one. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, you know, they're all basing um, their... Um, flights around you know, high, relatively high speed over oceans and then coming down to a little over Mach 1 
when they're overland to keep that pressure change down so that it becomes acceptable. Yeah. It's, uh, it is interesting, isn't it? It is. Well, I think it's a bit like uh, all these commercial balloons projects. Oh, Very no. few of them get off the ground. Here we go with the balloons again. <laughs> you somehow manage to always bring it up every single show, Nick. Oh, I love it. Yes. All right. Um, continuing. I think we still have some time left. Um, item 11 from Wim. Some feedback from Belgium or some random feedback oh. from Belgium. They have great beer in Belgium. I love do. the way they pour the beer and use that spatula to carve off the top of the head. It's just such a fine art. And those naturally fermented um, ales they have there. Pretty cool. Mm. Only recently started listening yes. to the APG podcast. Where have you been, man? As I miss traveling on airplanes very much. So listening to people talk about aviation has to fill the void a little. You guys talking about accidents is very interesting and educational. Listening to you guys is very educational, and especially thanks to Nick for plugging and participating in the Air Crash podcast episode about Air France Flight 447. Mm, thanks was for a, listening. Yeah, it was a very interesting episode, uh, specifically as I might be traveling across the pond on an Airbus A330 in the future. All I can say is good luck. No, I'm just kidding. Mm. Um, yes. <laughs> people ask me, why do you listen to these kind of things? Do you want to be scared of flying or traveling on particular types of aircraft? But the point is that when aviation incidents are discussed and analyzed on podcasts like APG, it actually makes me less scared as it shows the lessons that were learned and the measures that have been put in place to avoid any similar accidents in the future through better training of the pilots, newer and better security systems or better procedures. So thank you for doing this kind of stuff and please keep doing it. Okay. We will. I was thinking about not doing it, but okay. I'll, we'll keep doing it. <laughs> Just for you. Yeah. It's very enlightening. More so when you guys also point out the recommendations and measures taken that came out of the investigations as those are very reassuring. I eager, eagerly await the all clear to start booking my tickets and get back on board again. Sadly, Nick has retired. Well, I don't know. Depends on your perspective, I guess. Um, or <laughs> yeah. uh, Virgin Atlantic would have been at the top of my list of choices on the off chance of running into him. Well, all you have to do is just head down, down to Hampshire and you'll run right into him. Um, yeah. Or is it Hartford or Hedeford? I don't know. I can't keep them straight. I have no idea anymore. Okay. I've lost track. <laughs> You're not really sure either. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for, or Cornwall. Yeah. You might, if you head down there, you might see them. Thanks for keeping the virtual cockpit doors open so we can have, uh, keep having the view from your side. Kind regards, Wim. I love that name, Wim. So he just decided to send us some feedback on a whim. Bam. Oh, very good. And a prayer. Very good. And a prayer. On a whim and a, no, it's a wing and a prayer. Oh, it's, it's a wing not and a, a prayer. And a prayer. <laughs> oh man, yeah. So thank you for listening in Belgium and uh, send us some of that great beer, or maybe we should go over there and you can host us and we'll go a good drink idea. a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, continuing on. Oh, Ant, is he still with us in the chat? Probably not. He's a busy man. Yeah. Oh well. Um, he was with us in the live audience earlier and. Uh, let's uh, read this. <laughs> Ant's a funny guy. 
Okay, he says, hello, Miss Liz, Dr. Steph, Captain Nick, Captain Rick, and Lieutenant Jim Dangle. Or, um, I mean, <laughs> Captain Jeff. Hope you are all doing well. I'm unbelievable, as always. Yeah, you are unbelievable, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, we've had some people say that I remind them of Jim, Lieutenant Jim Dangle of the uh, Reno 911, I think it was the name of that uh, show. Anyway, very funny, by the way. I wanted to reach out and ask a few questions about the crew. Uh, in your downtime, do you all watch any aviation channels on YouTube? If so, which? I watch a few plane spotting channels and love them. Granted, at times it's a bit mindless, but it's also therapeutic as white noise. Um, and then uh, he says, also love the occasional voice pop-in of Miss Liz, especially that lucky you recording. I've always had a bit of affinity for Dr. Steph's voice, but Miss Liz has a great voice too. Makes my liver quiver. Lord have mercy. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of mercy, I think, is the way he uh, spelled that. That's great. Oh, so um, if you want to uh, be reminded about uh, what he is talking about, let me see if I can find the Liz disclaimer. Oh, in our... back. Yay. Okay, here we go. Um... Pardon the interruption. When we're recording the show live, the only person who can hear me is Captain Jeff. Now he's decided to include my audio here in the post-show edit. Lucky you. Enjoy. Lucky you. <laughs> and then, of course, if you want to be reminded of uh, Dr. Steph's voice. Mm -hmm. 16 inches high. There you go. <laughs> Can't get enough of that one. All right. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Ant says, uh, thank you all for everything you do to inspire, encourage, and even educate those interested in being part of the aviation community all the best to you all create and dominate <laughs> so uh, again that's um ant who apparently is um oh i'm sorry i'm misinterpreting that Ant anthony pruitt and uh what's so thank rap two i'm not sure um and what's rap two yeah i don't know what that means is he is he still with us i don't believe so. i doubt oh, it okay he, he yeah. was in earlier as you rightly said i don't I don't he'll know what that. He'll listen and let us know. Oh wait, 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 wait! I bet I know. Um, I bet his first name is not Anthony. I'll bet that his first name begins with an R, and A stands for Anthony, and P for Pruitt, and he's probably a, a second, a, second, a, a junior. Ah, that's. I'm just guessing, good. but maybe that's. Maybe that's. I'm going to go with Rudolph, or the type of music that he enjoys, rap. Maybe I don't know. No idea. Or 20 Randy. minutes left, Jeff. 20 minutes. 20 minutes left. Or okay, thank you, Liz. Um, so Rasputin. Rasputin. That's it. Uh-oh. That's kind Rasputin, of... Rasputin uh, Anthony Pruitt. Rasputin Anthony Pruitt. That's got to be it. That's got to be <laughs> it. The second. <laughs> the second. Okay. Um, Rick, he's back. Yes, sir. All right. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, hey, no problem. Just stuff here at the house. Hey, things happen, no right? Worries. Uh, you have more important things to do than this little gig. Um, <laughs> but uh, let's see. Let's continue. Any particular one, um, Liz, while we have uh, Rick with us? I'd quite like to do 15 if we get a chance. Oh, yeah. I was going to say that. So, okay, let's do it. Yeah, 15 is a good one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. This is from Dispatch Greg. 
and he says, crew, always a good discussion. Magnetic versus true. Can be f- confusing. East is least. West is best. If it's spoken, it's magnetic. If it's written, it's true. Blah, blah, blah. But should it go away? Discuss. So he uh, cited an article <laughs> from Ops Group. Uh, resisting the poll. Should we still be using magnetic north? And this is again from the International Ops 2021 Ops Group. So, um, as as Greg just said uh, succinctly, discuss crew. Ah, well. Oh, should I read this uh, article first? Yeah, I think we'll, we'll let's do that. Okay. It's a long article, but uh, okay. I'll read a little bit of it. I won't read the whole thing. Yeah. Let's just start with the uh, the the opening of this. Uh, just kind of set up the context and premise. Uh, in recent years, Nav Canada has been. Oh shoot! I don't want to read this. It has something to do with yeah. Canada. This this is an interesting beginning, actually. Okay. So in just recent years, Nav Canada has been leading a charge to move the industry away from magnetic north to true north. And it makes sense. Well, it makes sense for Canada because they're so close to north, magnetic north and true north. Ah, exactly. but not for much longer. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Modern technology has... a bit late to the game. Okay. Modern technology has arguably rendered magnetic north obsolete. So why are we still using it? The simple answer is because we always have. Delve into IKO Annex 4 and you'll see that bearings, tracks, and radials must still be published in degrees magnetic. But this begs the question, do we actually need it anymore? When humans first took to the skies, things were different. They needed a directional reference. Back in those days, it had to be something simple and light. Enter the magnetic compass. Nature was guiding the way because it had to. With modern navigation systems these days, all the magic happens reference to true north. Inertial and GPS systems both use simple conversions so that the information can be displayed to crew as a magnetic reference to match our charts and procedures. But because we are still using magnetic north as a reference, we are forced to deal with magnetic variation, the angular difference between the true and magnetic poles. It is an issue that costs the industry many millions of dollars a year to manage and can potentially lead to serious safety issues if things aren't handled properly on the ground and in the sky. And then it talks about the Earth's magnetic field and all that kind of stuff. Do, you, do I want to do I continue reading, uh, Nick? Well, I think the important bit is the fact that the magnetic uh, pole is moving, and it's mm-hmm. moving quite fast, and it's accelerating. So um, it used to be uh, sort of on uh, up there in northern Canada, mm-hmm. and over the years it's progressing across the Arctic Ocean, it's gone, now gone north of Greenland and it's, it's uh, making its way to Russia. So uh, all the time that this moves, it's becoming less of a problem for Canada and going to be more of a problem for Russia. So I can't see why Canada's getting upset. Hmm. <laughs> but I think we're talking the practical aspects here of people who navigate using a compass, the vast majority of um, GA pilots. Um, now, have, you're going to say GPS, but we all know that GPS kit, uh, right, requires a battery and occasionally gets turned off by the military or at least confused by the military. Uh, and it can be expensive. If you want to just fly a simple GA aircraft, you're going to have 
a super cub and a compass, uh, an airspeed indicator, uh, you know, ADSP probably. Mm. <laughs> and and that's going to be it. Um, you don't really necessarily want to be able to or have to afford all the other gear that requires you to measure true heading and what happens when it fails. Mm-hmm. Everybody in every airliner in the world has a backup compass. It's magnetic. So what do we do then? Exactly. And the thing with when you fly with the with a magnetic compass, I mean you're you're um you're um subjected to all kinds of errors. Um and um uh, I remember the 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 acronym from uh, from flight school, uh, VD Mona. <laughs> I'll never forget that. One. Ooh, well, <laughs> was, um, so you have uh, yeah, yeah, variation, deviation, magnetic dip, oscillation, and uh, northerly turning errors, and acceleration deceleration errors, and all these are things that you have to kind of keep in mind and um and and, and deal with, and particularly. Um, a deviation you, you carry around what's called a deviation card, which will basically tell you the magnetic heading to fly to achieve a certain uh, direction of flight, a, a cardinal direction of flight. So, uh, basically, what a, what a, what a, what a uh, the, the the card does, deviation card does, basically tells you once you have all your uh, equipment turned on in the aircraft. Um, the interference interference that that uh, equipment uh, uh, might have on the whiskey compass, and so if you want to fly, say a zero nine zero or east uh, heading, in order for you to actually fly that east magnetic heading, you might have to fly a zero nine two or a zero nine four heading on your compass to actually achieve a zero nine zero heading. And so these are things that you kind of have to uh, keep in mind, although. Uh, I have never uh, actually flown a commercial airliner solely referencing the whiskey compass. I have, however, taken a uh, uh, an airliner uh, out of a, um, a heavy check. And one of the things that you do is you do what's called a compass swing, in which you go up um, in, in very controlled conditions, turn on. Uh, equipment and and uh, and you have a mechanic with you, and uh, you have the um, the you fly uh, you know a north south east west and then north uh, northeast southeast and you know so on and so forth, um, and make sure that the uh, card actually um, is still is still accurate. And if it's not, uh, the mechanic uh, makes the uh, appropriate corrections and writes out a new uh, card, and then that becomes uh, part of the permanent kit of the jet. Um, and that's that's really the end of that. Another interesting thing is that a lot of these modern jets um, automatically switch from magnetic reference to true reference. Uh, if I remember correctly, at seventy degrees, seventy-three degrees north uh, latitude, and sixty degrees uh, south latitude, as long as you have, and this is in Boeing airplanes, as long as you have the uh, selector in auto, the heading reference selector in auto, it'll do it for you. And if you switch it to uh, uh, to true, then all your navigation uh, display will be um, a reference to true north. But I don't see why you would do that. Um, 
when you're not flying in the uh, high and uh, low latitudes. It's interesting yeah, though. I'm, flying, I'm, flying, flying. Uh, reference to True North is uh, that's the one right there. Yeah, that's and the then when right you're uh, even further north, are you going to grid, or does your True North be? Is that the equivalent of grid? Oh, and it goes. That's equivalent of grid. Okay. Equivalent of grid. Yes. All right. Exactly right. So uh, what we're talking about here is over the pole. If you're going to do polar flying, um, there is a predetermined uh, grid uh, laid out over the poles because, of course, (laughs) everything converges to meet over the uh, actual pole, not the magnetic pole, uh, and um, to give you something to fly because, after all, when you reach it, every heading is south. (laughs) Yeah, uh, to stop the, that confusion of what to do when you're over the pole, they lay out a, a rectangular grid spread over the top of the Earth, and you fly a grid heading to uh, allow you to na- navigate and separate from other aircraft. While you're Until you get to a certain latitude, and then you kind of pick it up again. Yeah, mm-hmm. then, then you flip back to as you come normal. up over the yeah. top there. But I tell you, I mean, flying, I've gone. I've never gone over the actual geographic um, North Pole, but I've been very close to it. And uh, the the way the navigation display uh, behaves at those latitudes is quite quite interesting. It, it for for a second there, your your flight mode enunciations are all over the place. It goes from you know lateral navigation uh, to heading, and then it tells you check heading. Um, it's just weird until it you yeah. go over the top of it and you, you start you know heading back down south and then it kind of goes ah here i am uh, so, which which way uh, are so you going uh, we're, we're, we're going south yeah <laughs> so it's probably worth mentioning that um uh, inertial reference systems that every aircraft every airliner has just about uh and gps uh naturally work uh in true and you just need a small computer to apply the appropriate magnetic variation for where you are to get your magnetic heading it's not the the i think they're rather overstating it where they say that they're forced to deal with magnetic variation the angular difference between true and magnetic an issue that costs the industry many millions of dollars a year to manage i don't think so i don't think it's cost that much you just have to update the software (laughs) sorry (laughs) <laughs> Hang on, Hillel, it's not time yet. <laughs> Mike is getting a little Just trigger happy. A few more, there. few more minutes, Hillel. <laughs> yeah, Hillel. Sorry. Oh, I love it. I love it. Got, got stopped getting, me by tracks. We're, we're almost at the end. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a database. Uh, it's it's not moving so fast that it's unpredictable. Uh, so it's not like it's you know it's it's frantically complicated to apply. And after all, if you've got a piece of kit that can read a GPS signal, or you've got a national reference, you've got computers attached to them. This is not really a seriously difficult add-on to convert it back into magnetic. For me, the big trigger will be, and it's actually long overdue, is when the Earth flips magnetic poles. It 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 should have happened already. It happens at relatively regular intervals, like a couple of millions um, of years. It's a, it's not really you know. yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, but it ha- and it has happened many many oh, we've times. Had this, in, uh, 
It depends on which scientist you're, 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 you're uh, reading about yeah. or talking to. <laughs> but there, there is a chance, uh, particularly since the movement of the magnetic pole has accelerated, that we're going mm -hmm. towards a flip. If and when that occurs, really that would be a do. damn good time to, to change away from magnetic into true navigation because it would be very expensive to update everybody's compasses oh, yeah. so they work the other way around. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I think know. with all the, the modern navigational that, uh, yeah. modern navigational equipment we have now, I think it's just a matter of time that somebody's going to go, you know what, why are we stu still doing the magnetic thing? Let's just yeah. make everything true. But that's a bit like when I did my air exams, I still had to learn how Amiga worked. I think there were probably three airplanes in the world, commercial airplanes, that still used Amiga. Oh, Omega. Um, okay. We, we pronounce it Omega. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and, and when you said uh, Amiga, I think another you, one. Is he talking about some kind of a game uh, console? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure what he's talking about. Omega, and there was another one that used that similar long range navigation. Loran, yep. yeah. Loran C. Yeah. Um, yeah, Loran. That's it. Uh, and uh, we still learned how it worked and all the errors and everything, even though nobody used it. So uh, the chances of us being able to move away from uh, magnetic navigation. Uh, unless something drastic happens, I think you're pretty remote. Yeah, and that's and that's just the thing. When when uh, whenever the 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 navigational database on aircraft is uh, updated, uh, a new uh, uh, variation uh, database is also updated. And I remember um, not too long ago, actually, on one of our old uh, Dash two hundred to the seven six two hundred that we had, um, uh, I think one or two of them. The variation, um, I guess, information what hasn't hadn't been uh, updated with the rest of the FMC database, and so a circular came out saying that uh, uh, you weren't don't use allowed. your compasses. Yeah, well, you weren't <laughs> you weren't allowed to fly um, um, area navigation approaches, uh, or basically using uh, the magenta line on, on lateral nav on, on LNAV alone. You had to actually use if, if you're going to fly a non-position approach. It had to be a VOR or a localizer-only approach using the course deviation indicator, like just an old-school HS side to make sure you were on the correct course and not trust the magenta line uh, because the, uh, the the database, the variation database, hadn't been updated. Even though the difference was probably a needle's width. Mm -hmm. If that. Yeah, it actually it was. And, and it's, <laughs> it's funny because I, I actually did fly an approach in one of those. So, um, uh, I don't know where, where I forget where it was, and um, going from from the ND uh, navigation display mode to the HSI mode, uh, I was I had the CDI centered using a heading mode, um, but if I went back to the map mode, the magenta line was was off to was off to the, to the left or the right. I forget what it was. I wasn't actually on course as it uh, you know as it pertained to the navigation display, but I was right on course as it. As it pertained to the uh, HSI, so it's interesting. Wow! Yeah. Hey, just a reminder to all of you, I guess watching live because by the time anybody actually sees this, <laughs> it will be several days from now or hears this. But tomorrow is uh, the new database for at least here in the U.S. for uh, your FMS. So don't forget to change that. All right, that's your PSA for this week's episode and. Now it is time off the table. for, oh no, 
That's an earthquake <laughs> in Phoenix. Earthquake. Sure. See, I didn't uh, update my variation card here. At Dell, <laughs> he didn't so update his variation that's, card. That's, I love that's it. what happens. Um, anyway, so it's now time for us to wrap this thing up. I know everybody's uh, breathing a sigh of relief. Uh, and uh, what we do here is usually tell you about our great website, airlinepilotguide.com, where you can find information about the crew and the community and the community calendar and the ABG library and more detail about the plane tales, as well as uh, the link or a way to get to uh, YouTube, uh, APG on YouTube. We have merchandise. And so much more. Please go ahead and check that out over at airlinepilotguy.com. Oh, and information about the coffee fund, if you are so inclined. And uh, we're also on social media, or since Steph's not here, I'm going to say the social meds. Um, perhaps Nick can oh, tell you, you all about brave it. brave boy. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Uh, we're on Facebook. And uh, if you want to find us there, you have to uh, look for Airline Pilot Guy on Facebook. Just Pop that in the search bar. Uh, and we're in Twitter, uh, the Twitter sphere at APG Crew. And that almost works for the Insta. In the Insta world, we're APG Crew. You just or I like to call it the gram. <laughs> the Do gram. you know? That's, that's, that's a very, very hip. It's so hip that it hasn't caught on yet. (laughs) Yeah, you're ahead of the trend. (laughs) All right. And uh, let's see. Oh, you know what? Uh, Hang on. Let me see if, you know, when I travel, sometimes it's hit and miss. But uh, let me see if I can uh, see if uh, Hillel is here in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, Hillel. Hillel. Come over here. It's time for Hillel. Uh, not for Hillel. For uh, Slack. <laughs> well, both. I mean, pretty much Slack is Hillel on the APG. All right. Yep. Come over here and uh, don't don't get things wet here. Tell us about Slack, please. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. Now you can head on back and just let me know when you're going to be out of there because I need to take a shower eventually. All right. There you go. Jeff, you've got to try these towels. Okay, just don't use them all, please. All right. Thank you, Hillel, for uh, informing us all about the Slack group. And anything else before we sign off, crew? No? No, I'll miss you, I'll miss you next week. Yeah, we're going to miss you, you as in well. two weeks' time. Oh. Yeah, just have a great time. Absolutely, Nixner. But Thanks. there is one last thing we always need to do, and that is to uh, uh, to to respect and to acknowledge the hard yeah, yeah. work that is put in each and every week by our producer director Liz Piper she is in Toronto Ontario EO EO Canada Thank you very much Liz for Hey, well done, Being there, thanks very much. In the control room while we do this thing live. Keeping and all it the all together. Stuff. Yeah. 
And until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Talons, Douglas. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Good day. Fine. Airline, not a guy. I fly. Oh.